It is June 22nd, Tuesday morning. A good morning to you. This episode of Real Talk is presented by the team at Bitcoin. Well, Bitcoin's in an absolute free fall right now. Like it is plummeting right now. And you are probably, if you're interested in crypto, uh, on one of two minds on this right now. Either, oh my gosh, full-blown panic or... What a time to buy. Having this text conversation with a couple pals right now. Chivers and Laws. And the three of us go back and forth on on, on how we're going to perceive and approach and, and even respond to movement in crypto. And I always tell them I think I have a bit of an advantage because I just check in with the team at Bitcoin well. Sort of sift through a lot of the noise and try to make sense of it. I'd recommend you do the same. If this is on your radar at all, check out Bitcoin Well under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We've got a great show in store coming up in about... Uh, We'll call it 10 minutes, eight or 10 minutes from now. Rod Miller is going to join us, president, CEO of Chartered Professionals and Human Resources of Alberta. We're going to talk about allyship. What does it look like? What does it mean? Workplaces, a lot of uh, workplaces are, are uh, this, is, this is a bit of a trend, making commitments, uh, public commitments to allyship and inclusion. You've heard us talking about that as well as part of that Power Ed course at Athabasca University. Rod will join us coming up in about uh, 45 minutes from now. Author J.D. McKinnon, our guest. We're going to talk about overconsumption. I love this. We're all going to, by the way, we're, we're going to have to do a gut check today. J.D. is author of the book, The Day the World Stops Shopping. And uh, the, the adjunct professor of journalism at UBC uh, out of Vancouver has been talking for quite some time about how overconsumption is rivaling or even overtaking overpopulation when it comes to what's feeding our eco crisis. And so I think that's going to be uh, I, I commit. I vow to examine my own practices, which I'm very nervous about as part of this conversation, because I know that that some of my habits are going to wind up in the crosshairs. But we will talk about overconsumption, needs versus wants, and all those types of things. I think it's going to be a good one. And then in the 10 o'clock hour, uh, if you're tuning in live, right around noon Eastern time, if you're listening on the podcast about an hour and a half from now, Sharon Hartung will join us. Sharon's a digital undertaker, exploring death in the digital age. Fascinating stuff. Sarah Hoyle is the producer of the show. Basically, this is what happens to your online presence, what happens to your online information, your data when you die. Is that is that kind of the gist of it is what we're talking about? That is exactly it. And it's really about, you know, what can I do in advance of that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I've got Twitter. I've got Facebook. I've got Strava. I've got Strava. Strava is the little app that you when you're I use it for hiking it's. I thought it was a total like nerd out where it it it's GPS and so it actually tracks oh, where you go. Oh yeah. And then I started using it because a f- couple of friends of mine were using it while we were going on hikes in in Canmore and whatnot. And and then I started using it and it's it's like it's addictive because it's super fun to see like well how far did I go? Yeah. <laughs> so it's not uh, okay, but it's it's good for the overachievers. It's not so good for those of us that are. I don't want a Strava that's like you went to the fridge and back. The <laughs> yeah, fridge exactly. and Turn back. It off it's at just that this point. bold red line that just goes back and forth. Wait, 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 so wait, maybe wait. so your Strava. This is part of your legacy, though, isn't it? Your Strava has has detailed and documented where you've hiked. Maybe you could could you uh, is bequeathed bequeathed. 
Could you bestow that? Could you leave that to someone? I don't know. I guess like, could we'll that be find part of your out. will? Where you say, I want my, you know, I, I want my, my loved ones or my best friend or my hiking partner to, to be able to remember all the hikes we did. So maybe I, I, I leave them that. Or you say, hey, so and so, you are my, you're the person that is like look, overlooking my estate. Yeah. And wrap that shit up. So like, this is like. Sign so, off. So yeah. Delete th- the account. This is like the deal that, that boys in high school have had with one another for decades which is hey bud um if i happen to meet an untimely and early death yeah would you please go into my third sock drawer and get rid of all the nudie mags before my parents start cleaning out my room right pull the screws out of the vent in the wall (laughs) i'm giving up everybody's hiding spaces now right there's a bottle of peach schnapps in there my parents would kill me if they knew that i had it right don't recommend storing weed in the vents (laughs) Not a good hiding spot, but it was works. That, was that a lived experience? It works a, for bottles. No, no, I was always, I never, you, you couldn't get stuff past my parents. It wasn't, you wouldn't want to, the house was not a good hiding spot. We didn't, we didn't have a lot of hiding spot. Well, at least I didn't. My siblings maybe did. I was more of an angel. Right. Uh, just a, just a, just a kid with just a halo around his head. I heard uh, something today that was blowing my mind and I, I don't even know, this is kind of a strange time to bring it up, like right out of the gates, but Emily Bashinsky has been hanging out with us. Um, in uh, stepping a, a wonderful new addition to our team, hanging out while while Sam has been on the road. I blew it yesterday, and I wanted to give Bad Buddy Emily's band a huge shout out, and I gave the wrong website, which I really blew it. So Bad Buddy dot band, Bad Buddy dot band, the new single Mind Control is out now, and Sarah, you and I are going to be blogging about that later today for Emily. <laughs> can you tell us? This has nothing to do with anything we're going to talk about today, but can you tell me? Can you share the personal detail? You know exactly the one I'm talking about. The personal detail about yourself that just blew my mind. Yes. So for those of you who don't know me personally, which is probably most of you, I am an identical twin. And uh, Ryan was like, oh, that's fascinating. And you're identical. You look alike. And I said, yes, we look. uh, Well, mostly I'm, I'm a bit of a runt, though, because I'm five inches shorter than she is. Right, Sarah? Right. So I was uh, <laughs> born feet first with my umbilical cord around my neck. So I came out a little bit, uh, a little bit, a little bit different. And now I'm just tiny, and she's a huge giant. And uh, but you're saying like, so you're identical twins, but you're five inches shorter. And you're saying you have curly hair, she has straight hair. Your hair's red, her hair's brown. There's a uh, there's some amazing. So how how, and and you're not a doctor, so I don't expect like the ins and outs of it completely but but you're identical you're not uh, not the other kind yes fraternal fraternal's the other kind and that is the other kind (laughs) you know what i meant a couple of scientists over here yeah identical (laughs) twins genetically identical and so it's uh amazing i think that really comes down to a environmental factor so the Mm. hair thing like she was a hair model for a super long time yeah. So she like straightened her hair. You can actually pull your follicles straight. And then she went through this big process of I want to do hair rehab. And so she learned how to get her hair back to so now it's quite curly again. Okay. But the height is just I'm a runt. The hair the hair to me is like you could explain that. Like you said, she yeah. used to straighten a long time, now it's straight or something like that, yeah. or different okay, you know. But to me, five inches in height like that's <laughs> not like it's not like, oh, I'm a half inch taller, my shoe size half of it, you know, bigger than my twin. I was like, Wow, five inches. That's yeah. major. And my feet are size four and a half and hers are size nine. 
Come on. Wild. Yeah, I got teeny tiny I got hooves. Wow. Got hooves. Fascinating stuff. Hooves, I have to amazing. I also have to admit that I also had my umbilical cord around my neck when I was born. So both of you were lucky to have both of you here. Yeah. Was that was that like a sketchy situation? Did, as far as uh, as far as you remember, Sarah, what did your what did your folks tell it you? Gets that, referenced it every once where, in a while when yeah. Sarah does something a little odd. I well, that's th- because Sarah had her umbilical cord around her neck. She was starved of oxygen for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. We don't know how long. Yeah. Some days it seems longer than others. And uh, there's apparently another story that I got dropped on my head. My mom fell down the stairs and I was in her arms and whoop, there goes Sarah. So there's a couple reasons. Yeah, for but this was back in the day, Hoyles, when we were all, I mean, you know, there's like if your, if your vehicle, if your family vehicle had seatbelts in the back, it was like, oh, wow. You know, kids were like riding up on the rear. What do you call it? Not the rear dash. You know, I'm talking more the where the back window. You know, you ride around up there, and parents would drive around. Not mine. I would, but you know, I mean, it's like who? If your parents like rolled the windows down a crack while they were smoking, it was like, oh, thank you. How considerate. You know, dad's like behind the wheel of the old snowmobile. It's like, uh, I don't want to, you know, he's like uh, cradling a scotch in his head. Like, you know, don't make me turn around. I, you know, I don't want to spill my drink. These are, you know, the 50s, 60s and 70s in parenting. People are just lucky to make it or make it through. Or maybe we're just too paranoid now. That might be it. It may be that we're more just paranoid now. Yeah. Like the other day, Wyatt's out, our, our little guy, he's five. And, and uh, we were lucky enough to be able to get out into a. You know, it's sort of a, an area where room to roam outside the city. And there's a kid's bike just laying on the ground. And, and he's like, Dad. And he's looking around. And I'm like, what are you looking for? He goes, I can't find a helmet. I can't find a helmet anywhere, but I want to ride the bike. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, well. <laughs> then you just you know, ride the bike. Don't worry about it, munchkin. Like, and, and then I'm thinking part of me is like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be the time that he just eats it. And he's not wearing a helmet. And something's going to happen. And then I'm going to be like negligent parent of the year. And you will know, probably be on the front page of the globe and mail you know probably over the you know the hood of a cop car yeah you know negligent you know deadbeat dad son cranium cracked you know something like this but back in the day bike helmets are like not not a thing yeah. uh, now obviously i support bike helmets before people start writing in angry but i i don't know it's just, i'm watching the live chat it's What's different happening? these days <laughs> but i bet you the live chat when when you when you start you know what first thing i see is from lisa lisa good morning to you she says what's the saying what doesn't kill you like mm. I, I agree now it's not like the best parenting approach. But you don't want you know, to be a helicopter should we buy, parent either. Uh, no, you don't want to exactly. Should we buy Johnny a helmet? Well, I mean, you know, I could learn a little uh, <laughs> truculence. Want to teach him truculence, right? Be able to get up, get back up on the, get back on the horse, right? <laughs> but uh, you know, I think probably finding that soft spot. And I'm not talking about in the top of their head <laughs> when they're young. <laughs> finding yeah. the soft. That's probably the secret to success. Today's show. Before we get serious. Before we get into allyship and inclusion with Rod Miller, I want to let you know we've also cleared a bunch of time because I have a stack of emails. Uh, These are great ones, uh, a ton of different subject matter. These are emails we've received over the past week, and Sarah and I were talking yesterday, so we got to leave time to get into these. Like, for example, this one from Brandon, who says, uh, back on May 31st, Brandon was catching up on episodes of Real Talks about three weeks ago. Uh, He says, in a conversation about fines for public drunkenness, do you remember this? Uh, He says a a number of other jurisdictions across Canada were listed, including the Yukon. uh, But producer Sarah Hoyles quickly corrected it to merely Yukon. Oh, boy. We're going back to this email. Shoot. Brandon says, I cannot let this stand. (laughs) As a born and raised Yukoner. Good morning, Yukon, and everybody tuning into Real Talk from what a beautiful part of the country. As a born and raised Yukoner, I would like to set the record straight. It's 
the Yukon always has been, always will be. Govern yourselves accordingly. The show rocks. That from Brandon. Okay, what okay. a great email. Okay, quickly. Because <laughs> I have some I have some amazing emails to get to. But we don't say the Alberta. We no, don't say the BC. Well, yeah, I mean, but I'm not you think I'm I'm not getting I'm not taking the other side. I'm just reading. I'm just the messenger. <laughs> don't shoot the messenger, Hoyles. So okay. hopefully three weeks from now, Brandon will hear your comment and then he'll reply, and then three weeks from then, then I'll read back what he had to say. And I wanted to read this from Robert. Robert sent us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Says, I don't recall what show, what date, but it was about a month ago. And you were discussing a matter of relevance to indigenous people and Canadians in general. And in the live chat, a.k.a. the nicest place on the Internet, says Robert, I agree, and I don't know why, and I don't, ha- I, I don't know why the universe gifted us this community of people, but it did. Robert says somebody suggested that real talkers look into the Indigenous Canada program at the University of Alberta. So I did. And Robert says, I'm happy to report, as of this weekend, I've completed the course, and I highly recommend it to everybody. And if you could please, on my behalf, give a shout out in general to the real talkers in the live chat as a thank you from me. I have no idea who it was that suggested the program, but I owe them a sincere thank you. Robert says, have a great week and thank you for continuing to include indigenous matters on your show. That from Robert. Amazing. If you're tuning in today, but you weren't with us yesterday, I encourage you to check out yesterday's show. If you subscribe to our podcast, anywhere you get your podcast, it's already waiting for you on your phone, your tablet. And of course, you can look back on our YouTube channel as well. Subscribe to Real Talk Ryan Jesperson, an amazing uh, series of guests as we observed National Indigenous Peoples Day. My, I think the conversation, I don't want to say my favorite. That's a strange thing to say, but I enjoy all the conversations, obviously. But the conversation with Chef yesterday was really enlightening and interesting because mm. it wasn't, it wasn't uh, I mean, when we think about, I mean, there's so many serious matters, heartbreaking matters, infuriating matters that demand our attention and deserve the respect of meaningful dialogue and tough questions. There's also much to celebrate and recognize and understand. And I thought yesterday, seeking to understand about language, culture, traditions, food. Mm. I thought that was a really, really great segment. Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, we've been digging into some really, as always, like digging into some really tough territory. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also, I mean, it really harkens back to when we were, we did our panel on the Friday um our pride panel and Jay from Vancouver said, you know, pride is protest, but protest is also there's, there's joy. Yeah. And it's like showing that people can have joy and live and find joy despite. Yeah. I want to produce the show like we would treat uh, conversations in our real life. Mm. Right. (laughs) If you get together with your friends and you know, soon I think some People will be able to, you know, at, at, whenever you're comfortable, be go back to socializing and spending time together. And I think that when people get together for coffees or beers or, you know, whatever around the campfire or whatever the case may be, uh, there will be times of joy and humor and laughter and yeah. frivolousness and sorrow and seriousness. And it's kind of how we treat the show, how we treat our lives. Uh, let's get into this first conversation with Rod Miller. I'm excited about this. Before we do, I, I want to let you know that this segment is brought to you by Power Ed. 
by Athabasca University, offering short online on-demand professional development courses and certificates. PowerEd is, I mean, number one, I think really offering an amazing opportunity for workplaces that have made a commitment to actively practice allyship. You can make that commitment, but then how do you know where to start? How do you, how do you begin to build inclusive communities in your workplace? PowerEd can help your organization take those first small steps. Their new micro course, Embracing Allyship and Inclusion, helps organizations recognize discriminatory practices, develop inclusive behaviors, and lay the groundwork for meaningful allyship in the workplace and beyond. The course is online on demand, so you can complete it at your own pace. It takes, you know, six to eight hours, call it a full workday or a couple afternoons. To celebrate Pride Month, PowerEd is offering a 10% discount for real talkers. Visit powered.ca, use Real Talk 10, the number 10, Real Talk 10 at checkout to claim your offer, a 10% discount through Pride Month, the month of June. Rod Miller is the president and CEO of uh, Chartered Professionals and Human Resources of Alberta, representing near the 6,000, uh, 6, get this, human resource professionals and practitioners in Alberta, the Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. Uh, Rod, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the program. Thanks for making time for us today. Hey Ryan, it's absolutely great to be here, and I got to tell you, I, I love the energy. I uh, I've already had two coffees, and I don't feel like I need any more after uh, watching you guys for the last ten minutes. It's well, been great. Hey, that's the highest compliment, <laughs> and I receive that. If it makes you feel any better, we can dim our studio lights now that you're smiling. So the feel the feeling is mutual. Hey Rod, I'm in front of a window. Man. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You've you've been in this uh, for a long time. I mean, obviously you're leading this team as as CEO. How long have organizations been talking about things like allyship and inclusion? Would you call a new trend or is it just maybe more prominent now yeah it's a it's such a great question ryan because i think it's always been part of the conversation that you have um, as an hr professional is thinking about how do you make sure that people you know belong in part of an organization but i think last year was a real catalyst for us when we look back at a lot of the incidents that happened to george floyd the black lives matter it really moved organizations from uh, from talking about um about uh, those challenges of systemic uh, uh, discrimination and racism that are prevalent in the workplace to actually beginning to think about taking action and what can we do as organizations and so who's really right involved in that is is HR. So that that sits with HR as part of learning and development and and engagement within an organization to take that on. So it's really become I would say core to organizations which is important and I think it's critical as as a man with Métis history. It's it's critical that these go from being conversations into actually defined actions that organizations can take to do things like root out discrimination. Is this, uh, I mean, for, for a lot of organizations, it, it might be a bit of an uncomfortable exercise as is often the case here. Where do you see that? You know, that's probably, I think, been the biggest challenge is that uh, people have not stepped into the space of deep conversations and deep, meaningful work around this because of, of fear. So fear of not being able to understand, fear of not being able to say the right words, whatever it, it might be your fear is, it's always been kind of like, we'll stick around on the, on the, on the back edges of this and just kind of participate. Well, now we're actually calling organizations into action to actually do something about it. And so uh, we feel as an association, our job is to give our membership, like those 6,000 members that we have, the tools and the courage 
to be able to actually go into their organizations and challenge their organizations to begin to root out some of these deeply rooted issues that are largely based upon uh, work constructs and colonialism that have been around for, for centuries. So it is part of the conversation today that is now turning into much needed action. Why, when I, when I ask you this next question, why is it important? I don't ask because I'm cynical about the importance, but I'm curious to know yeah. why organizations might recognize the importance. And I would, I would imagine it's probably multifaceted. Yeah, there, there's no question. It is, there are so many reasons, but I think the number one, there, there's a couple of reasons that come to mind that are important. Number one is the more diverse we are in a global world, uh, the stronger we are as organizations. That to me is paramount. That's critical. We see that in the literature that the more diversity you have, the more inclusion you have, the more that you create organizations where people feel they can be their true selves. You have productivity, uh, retention and engagement, which all lead into uh, strengthening an organization. I think at the core, though, is what we see now is we see places where people feel like they actually belong, where whatever their background is, whatever community they come from, whatever belief systems they have, if we create organizations where people feel that they absolutely belong there, that's good for them that's good for society, and that's really good for the organizations. And that's, I think, where we're at, is creating organizations where, regardless of your background, regardless of your culture, that you feel like you belong here in this organization, that's where we're headed. And that's exciting. So my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, Chartered Professionals and Human Resources of Alberta, so 6,000 professionals, you have made this course available uh, and accessible to each of those 6,000 members. And obviously the general public can check it out as well at powered.ca. But, but you took this course yourself uh, in broad strokes. Can you describe for us uh, how someone like yourself, even with years of experience in HR, I mean, you're supposed to be the woke ones. Uh, were there some aha moments for you through the, through the course of the six or eight hours? You know, so, so let me give you a bit of background on this one, because I think the background is as important. So when uh, we began to look last year around taking action uh, on this topic of allyship and inclusion and rooting out some of these deeply rooted issues, um, I convened a group of 60 HR professionals together to do a workshop and identify what was important for them as HR professionals around, around this topic, these topics. And two things came to light in the workshop that we did. Number one was that they're HR professionals and they have a responsibility and an important role to play to be an advocates for allyship and inclusion within, your, within their organizations. That was one point. The other point though, that was really critical was that we have many HR professionals who come from these very diverse communities and they were subject to those policies, those rooted issues, systemic discrimination and such within their own organization. So one of our goals was, okay, we need to not only provide opportunities that educate you and train you and give you information to deal with these issues, we also want you to feel courageous that you can go into the organizations and take a stand for principle and what is right around these issues. And so after that, I began to look at, well, how do we do that? And so I, I knew the uh, the previous president of of, uh, of Athabasca University reached out to him and said, look, here's what we're thinking about doing. We'd like to bring some high quality education and training to our membership community. We have a belief as a community that we want to we want to meet you where you're at when it comes to your professional development, because we've got people in the smallest corners of the province and in the territory. So we wanted to make sure 
this was available to everybody. And the one university that we all know in Alberta that does that well is Athabasca University. So we entered into a conversation with the Power Ed team and said, look, what can we do together? So the allyship and inclusion course is one small part of what's being offered to our entire membership community around professional development. And I think it's such an important uh, course because it does bring the fundamentals of allyship and inclusion into your computer, into in front of you. So to help you gain more confidence around the topics, to feel like you can enter into conversations within an organization, to help be part of the solution and not stay on the outside boundaries of this all, it's a it's a phenomenal course, and it's and it's and it's uh, simple and it's quick. Uh, and it's and it's important. So, Rod, let's let's uh, let let's get into this. So, there's going to be people where you say, you know, allyship and inclusion. Like, hey, y- you can't use those words anymore, or you can't make the jokes about. Like, there's there's those conversations where you're like, seriously, like really. Yeah. And but then there's the average person that that would say, hey, no, I'm open minded. I'm I'm loving. I'm kind. I you know I I. I my family attends Pride when we can, and I took my kids to the Black Lives Matter demonstration, and and we care, and we want to communicate that we care, and then still you might go, ooh, I, I, I noticed a couple things, either about my workplace or myself through, through the course of this that maybe I wasn't even aware of. They may be subtle, but they were things that demanded attention. Are there some common moments like that? Are there common things that, that many of us might be doing in the workplace that we might not recognize that that could be tweaked? Absolutely. Let, let's give you a let's give you a clear example. Um, I know individuals who will change their name on their resume because they won't use their name of origin because it could be seen as discriminatory. Yeah. Right? They could be perceived as not being Canadian or whatever it is. So we're seeing organizations do nameless resumes. It's based upon skills now or competencies, not based upon a person's name or right, an implied culture. These are systemic issues that are rooted within organizations that organizations need to take stock of and begin to think about the impact on building an inclusive environment when these processes that are ingrained are in place within the organization. What what is often at the at the at the stopping point of people engaging in these conversations is the fear of not doing it right. Right? I don't want to offend anybody by saying something that might be offensive when it's not meant to be offensive i'm trying to learn and that's the key is that we need to step into this conversation from a perspective of learning and building stronger community and giving people a whole lot of grace if they end up making a mistake and just saying that's part of the learning process that's how we're going to iterate this together is that we're going to teach each other and that's the real wonderful uh, piece about community but there are definitely Uh, I would say systemic practices that exist within organizations that the first step organizations need to do is, is to look inward first before they do anything. We we had a really interesting conversation uh, late last week about this show, the salary trend. And we started talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, the job market and employment and some of the the barriers to employment for people, um, including gender wage gaps and others. And we heard from exactly what you've touched on, Rod, a number of people, even just anecdotally in our live chat, talking about how they've changed their names on resumes, how they've changed their names, the names they use in the workplace. Uh, we had a, one individual, I don't remember, was it Jordan? Someone that had, an, it, could, it could have been a, a man or a woman, you weren't sure, and, and, and then they revealed that the middle name was a, 
I mean, geez, now I feel like I'm uh, appear this trepidatiously, but like a, a name that would typically it was like Nicole or something like that. Mm. Um, mm. But this this audience member said that they've not used their middle name on a job application. You know, I mean, just these are things that may be subtle, but they're not subtle at all. Right. They're they're also addressing something pretty major. No. And I think we have mm. these moments when we have these conversations that, that are pretty interesting. I've noticed more and more people describe themselves these days. That was that was on June 16th, that show, if people want to look back and check out that interview on Show the Salary. Um, I've noticed more and more people are describing themselves, I think in particular responding to some pretty high-profile and horrifying events that we've seen lately, including in London, Ontario, that family that was just murdered in cold blood based on their ethnicity, based on their faith. Um, More and more people appear to be publicly describing themselves as anti-racist, which to me implies a position that they're taking that is not just to say, I'm not a racist, right? It's to say I oppose, I actively oppose racism. Um, do you see the same thing with regards to what the general public or employees uh, might expect from a workplace or from an organization? To, is, is it enough to say we have been aware of, educated ourselves on, and responded to longstanding discrimi- discrimination, we would, we would consider ourselves to be allies? Or do you see a, a day, and is today that day, when organizations actively work to further some of these goals? In other words, they go on the offensive in a positive sense. Yeah, so so first of all, um, there is there is laws around this, right, that, that uh, you know, racism from a human rights perspective is not allowed. Like, it's just not allowed. Um, but I, what I see is this is the start of a, of a journey, which I think is very exciting because we're starting to see momentum begin to happen in organizations where we've moved from saying, yeah, you know, we stand with this community. Okay, that's that's great that you stand with them, but what are you doing within your organization to ensure that everybody feels welcome here, that they actually belong here? What are you doing as an organization to root out some of these practices and actually begin to be that place where people feel like they belong, where they can be them full, their full selves, where they can bring their culture to work. So I think we're on the start of a journey. And I think that certainly the events of the past have, uh, have uh, in particular the past year, you know, when I heard about the event in London, Ontario, I was, I was sickened by that. Um, those continue to be those forces that are challenging us to get away from being comfortable to being uncomfortable. And being uncomfortable in this is okay, because that's how we grow, stretch, and learn. It's like learning and development. I may not know, I may not have known accounting, but I dove into accounting because I wanted to learn it, and I felt uncomfortable because I didn't know it, but I learned about it. And that's what this is really all about: is we need to build environments of learning. This is why I really appreciate the courses you've mentioned: the University of Alberta course, the Allyship course. This is a chance to to create a safe environment for individuals, organizations, employees to dive into the learning journey of what this can be when we exit it in the future and create organizations where everyone feels as though they belong. And is that a panacea? Yeah, potentially, but boy, what a great journey that's gonna be when we kind of start moving down that pathway. We've got some great comments and some insights here on our uh, live chat, and and one, one in particular kind of jumped out at me. Um, 
I mean, people are curious to know who who developed this program, who developed the you know the curriculum, so to speak. Was it developed by people from a diverse perspective? And um, and I have to apologize for the viewer; I can't find it right now. Uh, here it is from Carrie. Uh, she wonders uh, why is the disability community it seeming you know seemingly never included in these discussions about diversity and inclusion? Um, we're talking about the most underemployed demographic in our province. Um, how do we ensure that those conversations happen? And, and, and if you're in a position, Rod, to discuss who put this curriculum together, can you give us some insight into who developed it? Yeah, I can't, I can't say for a fact who, who developed it, but I do know the quality of, of the program, and, I, and I'm sure that the, uh, the Pirate team you know, went to the community to get this done. I do yeah, to be clear, that was, not, that was not your job, to be clear, that you weren't involved yeah, no, in that. No, yeah. no, I wasn't involved yeah. in that at all, nor, nor was I an advisor to it. But uh, the, other, the other point's an important one, because uh, you know, we're not just talking about diversity of culture or race or those type of things. Uh, we are talking about overall, diver- overall diversity, and that, that's where I think this conversation is going from diversity, equity, inclusion into a conversation of, of belonging, where we do things in an organization to make pe- people feel like they belong. There's a neurodiverse community out there that uh, you know we are working with in, with some organizations on getting autistic employees to work into environments that uh, are suitable for them. I think the, the the disability community or those who are disabled that's an important demographic that we have to we have to bring into the workforce. Uh, it is really at the end of the day about making sure. Everyone feels as though that they can they belong to an organization and that they contribute they can contribute to an organization because that makes us all stronger and that's I think the message is how do we make sure we build environments where everybody feels like they can make a contribution to that work whatever that is for them and that's there's so much in that and so much that we need to do and what we need to look at it from the HR perspective is we raise the questions with organizations. You're doing a great job around indigenous inclusion. What are you doing around the neurodiverse community, or what are you doing around the the disabled community? What are you doing there? What you know? So bringing those questions to the table through the work that we do from a professional development perspective or from a conference perspective, whatever it might be, is really ensuring that our community is actively engaging in those conversations, and then beginning to take it into action. That's the force that I want to put out there with our HR communities. Let's move this forward from just talk to action, share cases, share community. Here's what we're doing. And I think that that one about the, the disability community is a very important one. Can people call themselves allies? Can you be a self-proclaimed ally? Uh, I think you can be uh, you can be an allyship. Uh, this is a personal opinion. It's not, it's, it's mine. I think that uh, to me, it is always a reflection on am I being an ally to those around me? Do I create space for them? Do I stand beside them? Do I help them be their best selves at work? I'm not sure that that's a question that I can answer for me. I think that's a question that my community can reflect back on me. So maybe just leave it there because I, 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 that's how I, that's my view on it. Yeah. Rod Miller, uh, CEO of Chartered Professionals and Human Resources of Alberta, representing uh, more than 6,000 human resources uh, professionals and practitioners. Uh, across Western Canada, Alberta, the Northwest Territories, and uh, none of it. Thanks for hanging out with us. We appreciate it. No, it was a pleasure. Anytime. Really you can uh, learn more again at, at powered.ca about that course, Embracing Allyship and Inclusion. Again, Real Talk 10 uh, gets you 10% off uh, the registration fee for Pride Month for the month of June. James on the live chat, th- this jumped out at me. James says, the issue I've felt of late during interviews is not my name, James Best. 
not my skin color, which I can I can only see about an eighth of an inch of his his uh, his profile photo, just a tiny little photo. But he appears to uh, do I say he presents as white? He appears to be white. He says it's not my name or my skin color. It's my size. James says the first time an employer sees me on camera or in person, it seems to be the last contact we have. That from James, which is an interesting insight. Now, I don't know. James could be ta- again. I don't I can't see. But uh, James, he could be talking about his height. He could be talking about his weight. I don't know. Um, let me. This is something I came across just yesterday. And I'd love to share this with you all uh, impromptu uh, prompted by James. Thank you, my man. If you're on Instagram, go check out Humans of New York. It's an amazing. They've got like 11 million followers. And these are just real people. A photographer, basically a photojournalist, goes around the city of New York and talks to people and gets their story and they present photos. And so see here you can see, um, I mean, this guy is just an amazing guy. Um, This is Luke. And, uh, you you know, sort of like Luke has supplied some photos. And and you can see here if you're listening to the podcast while you're listening, go check out Humans of New York on Instagram, Humans of NY. And you'll see this. Now, there's an amazing follow up here with this fellow Luke. This is this is just posted less than a day ago. Um, and as you can see, you know, 685,000 people have liked what he had to say. But let me read this. I don't blame the girls. Not at all. I get it. I get it. But I've always wanted a wife and kids. And as I get older, it starts to get more real. I've never had a girlfriend. I've always been the funny, fat friend. It's the one thing I'm good at, making people laugh. It's the greatest feeling in the world. Somebody's having a great time, and it's because of me. I've always lived in that feeling in elementary school, in middle school. But as I got older, something got twisted. All my jokes became about myself. When it was time to eat the cake at the birthday party, I'd joke about the size of my slice. And when it was time to jump in the pool, I'd joke about taking off my shirt. You know, I'd say the moon is coming out, and and it always got a laugh, which felt good. But, you know, it kind of sucks. Because I don't think I've ever taken off my shirt without making a comment. It's my way of protecting myself. Like, no, asshole, you can't make fun of me because I beat you to it. But I think it might have fucked me up, all those jokes, all those years, because it made everybody look at me as the fat guy. It made me look at myself as the fat guy. I mean, my Twitter handle is Fatrick Ewing. My bio says fat white guy with glasses. It sort of became my identity. I'm just a fat, funny idiot. That's what I think about myself. And I feel like that's what everybody else is thinking, too. Every time I'm in a waiting room or when the seat's a little too small or when I walk into the grocery store, my anxiety gets so bad I can barely talk to the person behind the register. My therapist tells me, you're a good guy. You're nice. Who cares? And she's right. I get it. But I also think that if I wasn't fat, I'd probably have a girlfriend. I'm trying to love myself more every day. Every day I'm working on it. I make deliveries for my job. And uh, let's say I leave my scanner in the car. My mind is immediately going to say, you're a fat asshole. But I'm trying to stop myself. I'm trying to say, no, no, you're not. You just forgot. People forget. I'm trying to get back to Luke again. The nice funny dude who loves his friends and his family not luke the fat guy just luke before he decided to bully himself 
incredible. So Humans of New York leaves this note and says, if you want to get in touch with Luke, because this post just goes boom. This is just, yes, this isn't even 24 hours ago. And the good news is, and we're not going to share it with you because you have to watch it yourself. Go to Humans of New York on Instagram. You'll see here. Check this out. Luke, as you can see, has posted a video responding to all the comments that he's got. And human beings remind us once again that we have the power to be amazing mm. and that allyship and inclusion is possible. And it's a really wonderful story. I didn't intend on sharing that today. Uh, I really appreciate the comment from James. And hopefully that'll uh, infuse some, some positivity. I know that for some people, me reading that probably hits pretty hard for some people. But it also gives us a bit of a wake-up call. What a conversation. I think when we talk about diversity, there can be that default of we're talking about cultural and um, yeah, ethnicities. And there can be things that are kind of left off the table or are just kind of peripheral. And so it's, I think that that's a, a really fantastic reminder mm. that diversity and inclusion is about abilities. It's about uh, shape and size. It's about um, ethnicities. It's about, yeah, culture. So religion. I mean, it's, it's, I got an email it's all from, the above. I got an email from a guy the other day that, that asked that I not read it on the show. And, and I'm always like, oh, no, but it's so good. I'm like, can I change the name? I'll, t I'll tell everybody I'm changing the name. No, but he doesn't want me to share it. But I think I can say that. Um, and he's not. Let me just say it in real plain language. He's not some whiner. He's not he's not some some victim. He's not some guy that, you know, you know, white guys aren't getting hired anymore. It wasn't that kind of an email. But it was an amazing email from a guy that talked about how as a young child and a young man, he, he was never ashamed of his faith or never made to feel like he needed to be ashamed of his faith. But he feels now that as a Christian man, and again, I'm telling you, because I get I see a lot of these messages, especially on Twitter and stuff like that, where people are like, uh, and you go, oh, cry me or ever. No, but that, that this was not that type of email at all. It was a wonderful, sincere email. If you're watching, you know who you are. You know you sent it to me a couple of days ago. And I was sitting there and thinking, you know what? Like, it, it is interesting. I'm going to be honest. It's interesting how in, in many circumstances, some stuff is still cool. Some stuff is still cool with the general public. You want to poke fun at certain groups of certain people, still cool. Other people, not cool at all. And it was a great wake-up call. Not a wake-up call for me, but it was a good reminder, let me say. And uh, all of this to say, please keep, please keep the emails coming. Please do feel free to limit the don't read these on the air emails. And we always love when we can share what you have to say with our audience. And we're going to keep doing that through the course of the show today. Uh, Terry is chiming in. Terry says, she says, I'm going to be in uh, Edmonton today and I need to find one of these DQs to hit up. If you don't call Edmonton home, but you're on your way into the big city, we want to remind you that the DQs you're looking for are at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount. Y Gardens in Sherwood Park and Baseline Road, Sherwood Park as well. Kudos to everybody that snagged a Father's Day cake for five bucks off. And the teams at those Dairy Queens told us that Real Talkers were opening up their wallets for the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation as well, which I'm not even surprised one bit. You guys are amazing. The new promo 
Drop my name, Jespo. Mentioned Real Talk. Two single cheeseburgers for five bucks, two double cheeseburgers for seven bucks. If it's two more bucks for the doubles, singles. Who's, come on. I mean, unless you're maybe getting the two singles and stacking them because you need more of your carbo loading. Yeah, I'm carb loading. Yeah. (laughs) Big, thick buns. What? Derek Queen's like, we we think we're going to leave that one on the table. Thanks, Rye. Back to the drawing board. (laughs) These are 100% all beef patty or patties topped with processed cheddar cheese, pickles, ketchup, and mustard served on a warm toasted bun. Warm toasted buns. Two for five bucks, two doubles for seven bucks at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Also wanted to remind you that if you're getting outside this weekend, maybe this week, this week is looking incredible in our neck of the woods and across the country right now. Forecasts looking pretty spectacular. Campers Village has the best gear for right here. Family owned for a long time. It's two brothers, you know. They've got two stores in Edmonton, one in Calgary, but here's where it matters most. They're online 24-7 at campers-village.com. They'll ship right to your door across the country. Most orders over 49 bucks ship for free. So whether you're hitting the mountaintops, you're paddling on the lake, you're sitting around the campfire, maybe you're just taking in a wonderful evening together in your own backyard, check out Campers Village at campers-village.com. You know, I've just realized what I did. I wonder if I should bring up the music again and do another spot that's not directly about shopping Right before I talk to the author of The Day the World Stops Shopping. <laughs> Emily brings the music Emily back Emily just in. hooks me up. She's like, Jespo, you want to get yourself... A- no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll in hot with J.B. McKinnon because I bet you that J.B. will get mm. a kick out of this because J.B.'s entire thing as author of The Day the World Stops Shopping is to get us thinking about consumerism and overconsumption. And my man, welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us today. I think we've got you on mute, J.B., so we'll just... Check and make sure that we get you so we can hear you. Let's try again. We got you. I think you've got me now. Wonderful. So there, I guess there is a certain irony. Obviously, I didn't plan that. (laughs) And some people are going to need outdoor gear. They're going to say this is a need, not a want. But uh, you've literally written the book on being able to discern between the two of those. Yeah, I mean, we could always try and sell my book. (laughs) I I think it's a need. I think it's a need. Yeah, that's right. What what got you started on thinking about this? Was this was this like a personal exercise for you years ago? Not so much a personal exercise. It's, I think it's something that I've wrestled with over the years, like a lot of people. Uh, you know, how much is enough? And when I go out to buy things, what are the consequences of that? Um, but also working as a as an environmental writer, I just started to realize that pretty much everything that I wrote about any topic came down as the cause of it came down to consumption to a large extent. So uh, I started looking into that and immediately ran up against this dilemma that we're in, whereby, you know, it seems like the planet needs us to stop shopping so much, to stop consuming so heavily, but the economy needs us to keep doing it. So, you know, that's what I decided I'd try and look beyond in the book with this thought experiment, the day the world stops shopping. Yeah. Can, can, so why, before we get into that, why don't we talk about how we got to where we are right now? I mean, uh, how, how different are we from a hundred years ago or, or 50 years ago? Radically different. I mean, we're consuming, we're consuming <laughs> an enormous amount more uh, globally, collectively, and 
for most people per capita than we were even 20 years ago, which is, I think, shocking because if we think back to the turn of the millennium, you know, I don't think anybody thinks, well, those, that was the stone age or anything close to it. Uh, but we are, you know, we're consuming a lot more per capita than we were at that time. Why do you think it is? Have, have we, like, is, is it that advertising works? Is, is it that we've, we've amended or adjusted or uh, devolved our, our sense of self-worth to, to tie it to assets or, or the feeling we get when we hit purchase? Or what, what is it, do you think? It's kind, of, it's kind of all of those things, but really it's that we've created a system that runs on consumption. You know, the economy requires us to consume. We require growth in the economy, and that means that we need growth in consumption. Uh, we'll take it wherever we can get it. We'll take it by expanding consumption globally. We'll take it by expanding consumption per person. But that's, that's the system we've built. That's what we, the system we live in, consumer society. So can you take us in, uh, J.D., or pardon me, into the, into the book? Um, we, we've got, uh, so J.B. McKinnon, our guest, if you're listening live, streaming on audio, if you're joining us on, on, uh, on YouTube or listening to the podcast later, you can find the book anywhere you buy good books. J.B. McKinnon's The Day the World Stops Shopping. You take us into this, essentially, a thought experiment of, of quite literally, a world without shopping. So, so this would be, people are going to go, come on, this is, this is totally, <laughs> totally unrealistic. What's the premise, uh, J.B., of the book? Well, what I, what I love with it is how it went from unrealistic to realistic during the process of writing the book. So, you know, I was trying to come up with, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, on the written page, I'm going to, I'm going to slow down shopping drastically and then play out what happens over the coming hours and weeks and eventually millennia. Uh, I was calling around to people I wanted to talk to about this and saying, you know, here's what I've chosen to do. I'm going to try and drop global consumption 25% overnight and see what happens. And I had people saying, some people said, like, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> that's that's too crazy. It's so speculative. And then, of course, it happened. Uh, the pandemic came along and consumption did drop by about a quarter, uh, practically overnight. And we got to see, you know, kind of got to see my thought experiment play out in real life. So do you, I mean, is it possible because you, you, you're not ignoring the fact, uh, as a matter of fact, you are proclaiming the fact that uh, a healthy economy requires spending. I mean, you look at any level, I mean, you're, you're coming to us from, from Vancouver, right? You're a, pro, a professor of journalism at UBC. Um, people can be, whether you're in uh, you know Vancouver or whether you're in New York City or whether you're in Auckland, New Zealand, government officials and political leaders are talking about stimulus spending, consumer confidence. I mean, these are all the the specifics that are tied to economic recovery so so what's the alternative pathway and do you think anybody could actually no pun intended buy into it <laughs> yeah i mean i think what i found in writing this book is that through most of history we've been talking about simplicity in much too simple a way we've you know we generally when we talk about reducing consumption we say we put it on the individual. We say, hey, you know, you should buy less. You should stop consuming so much. And it's ironic that we do that because, because we've created this consumer economy that, that runs on our consumption. We know that if everybody does what the simplicity movements uh, you know, ask people to do, that, that everything collapses, essentially. So what we need to do is, is make actual changes within the system. We need to look at how we can draw down consumption uh, 
in all kinds of different spheres of society from the way we make products to what we make available for people to do in cities. Uh, we can address things like inequality, income inequality, because it's a major driver of consumption. Uh, so there's specific concrete steps we can take to kind of remake society in ways that will reduce consumption. Do those start at home? Like, does that start with each individual that's watching or listening to this? I think each individual can gain a lot from, I mean, people should be examining their own consumption. I think so. I think uh, in part because there's so much to gain from reducing consumption. Again, we saw some of that in the pandemic. The pandemic was a strange circumstance and not the kind of uh, world that it doesn't perfectly reflect a world that's deliberately trying to stop shopping. But we did see people revisiting their values and priorities during the pandemic and getting a really you know, much clearer sense of what are, what are the parts of the consumer economy or what are the parts of consumer culture that are really important to me and what parts did I not even notice disappeared during lockdowns and what parts uh, did I feel relieved about not having to uh, participate in during during the pandemic. So right now we're at an interesting place where, yeah, I think people people at home have a have a a better sense of how they want to think about this than maybe I've seen in my lifetime. We've got uh, some really great insights. Or people are opening up and sharing, which I appreciate on our live chat. JB, as they're listening to this interview, um, Kim says, "I hate like a whole bunch of A's. I hate being a consumer." Kim says, "I love experiences, but I also like." shopping therapy and actually quite a few people have talked about shopping therapy do you have some insight there based on putting this book together <laughs> well i mean it really makes sense it's uh the consumer culture has gotten very good at giving us these these little dopamine hits that make us feel good in the day and uh what the the problem with those dopamine hits is they, they do work on a day-to-day -day basis as like if you need a pick-me-up and it makes you feel good to buy something new, it works. It's just that adding those up day after day, week after week, month after month, doesn't amount to deeper life satisfaction. That's, that's the trick with it all is that, you know, sometime we have to get off the dopamine hit train and try to invest a little more effort in, in more deeply satisfying pursuits, uh, which we did see people doing when, uh, when the pandemic lockdowns hit. Do you think there's going to be a permanent, like in the context of what you and I are talking about, will there be a, a, a residual semi-permanent or permanent impact from, do you think, the pandemic in, in this context? I'm a little bit of a pessimist around that because of the reasons you pointed out earlier, which is that there are these enormous forces compelling us to get back to consumption. You have $600 billion advertising industry is revving up again, uh, government stimulus checks. You've got lifestyle journalism. I've noticed all of a sudden there's like top 10 trends for summer, you know, these sorts of things happening again. They're trying to get us thinking in terms of consumer trends and what to buy. Um, so it's, I mean, I think the best bet is that we're going to go back to consuming as much and probably more uh, than we did before the pandemic. What I hope, though, is that this time, as that happens, people are going to feel a little bit of discomfort because of the the process they went through, you know, revisiting their values and so on during the pandemic. Hopefully that means we can finally start to have a conversation about consumption because it is now the greatest driver 
of the environmental crises that we face on the planet, including climate change. So um, it's the big one, and we need to be we need to be talking about how we can change society in ways that will draw this down. I it's so important. I think that you know it's so important to be confronted with the reality, like the consequences of our decisions, because we. We, we so blissfully make our way through life without thinking about that. I mean, I'm talking about these floating, you know, plastic islands in the ocean and these types of things. And that's just one example of, of yeah. a ton of them. And maybe we haven't had as a society enough of a reckoning. You know, I mean, it's, it's just so easy for us. Our, you know, our garbage and recycling comes on Tuesday morning. So I was up a little bit earlier today than normal, JB, and, and putting out like, bags and bags and i was i was to be honest patting myself on the back a little bit because we've achieved you know the family goal is that we had only about a half a bag of garbage and like four bags of recycling but at the same time four bags of recycling look at all (laughs) look at all of the packaging i mean if you if you looked at what was in the bags uh you'd probably say that nobody's really starving or nobody wants much in this household like it was it's actually kind of in a way Maybe a little bit embarrassing, to be honest. <laughs> well, you know, it also reflects, though, the way that we've been approaching consumption for probably the last 20, 25 years. You know, the, in the 1990s, people were really anxious about consumption and where it was taking us. In the early 2000s, we started thinking, you know, maybe we can just green this all away, like the emergence of green products and recycling and uh, all these sorts of programs, uh, bike lanes, uh, energy efficient appliances, you know, we suddenly started thinking, maybe we can just make all of the con- environmental consequences of our consumption disappear. Um, so say two decades into that experiment, I think we can say that that's, you know, hasn't been working as effectively as we'd hoped, certainly not in terms of climate change. Um, so yeah, I think we're back to the place where we, re- we have to realize that, you know, we can't just keep greening our appetites, our consumer appetites, if they're constantly growing. At some point, we need to actually look at reducing consumption. Yeah. Donna makes a good point. I was thinking about this earlier. She says quality goods might address a lot. Appliances used to last for years. Now everything breaks after a few years. I mean, can you imagine if you heard a, a friend say that they were taking their Blu-ray player to be fixed you, like, <laughs> what? Unimaginable. You know, right, unimaginable. And you'd probably say the same thing for toaster ovens and microwaves and everything. Like, we don't. I mean, I think of, you know, my grandparents, and they had means, right? They, they, they did well. They had means. But their kitchen, like, I think of the original oven. I mean, it was in there, as a matter of fact, on both sides of my grandparents. The same oven, literally, from the 1950s all the way through till when they sold their homes, you know, in the autumn of their lives, as we say. I mean, that, that was just... That was the style, whether it was vacuum cleaners or, or even in some circumstances, vehicles. We treated it differently. I mean, now, right, if a microwave goes kaput, I mean, it's just gone, right? Yeah. We talk about, you You, you mentioned shopping therapy earlier. Uh, somebody got in touch with me on Twitter and talked about appliance therapy. And this is apparently what appliance salespeople have to do when people come and say, hey, can you fix my, can you fix my oven? And they say, you know, that thing wasn't made to be fixed. Yeah. It's had a four-year lifespan, and now it's it's headed to the landfill. And people are, you know, people are devastated by this because they they do still have this memory of like, wait, aren't these things supposed to last fifty years? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's not so much the case anymore. But that's a great point uh, from your listener. I mean, 
it is one of the great examples of how you can take concrete steps to reduce consumption is we can do things that can reverse this trend towards more and more disposable products. We can mandate lifespan uh, labeling on products. We can, we can require that companies make their products more repairable. We can, uh, you know, we can tax, we can place uh, taxes or charges on the resources that go into products so that it's more profitable to make fewer, you know, fewer articles of high quality clothing than to make billions of disposable garments. So there, you know, these are things that we can, there are, these are steps that we can take that we can, you know, work towards as a society that will reduce consumption and don't just put the onus on all of us to feel like, you know, feel terrible about uh, how much garbage and waste we're producing and how many articles of clothing we buy per year. I mean, you could buy, you could write an entire, you know, you know, I mean, you could write volumes on just sustainable fashion alone. Um, yep. and, and there's really interesting movements on, on how people are like fashion upcycling and clothing swaps. And, and these are like, I'm not trying to sort of degrade them or dismiss them at all. Um, it's great that people are doing that, but there's a bigger picture of the fashion industry. And I think people would be shocked uh, to know the, 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 the contributions, not in a complimentary way, but the contributions that the fashion <laughs> industry is making when it comes to the environment. Let me ask you, I want to follow up on what you talked about, like lifestyle or pardon me, lifespan labeling for products are you talking about like a federally regulated requirement that might say this microwave is is guaranteed to last seven years or this stove will only last 10 years i mean is, is that what you envision yeah that's the kind of concept anyway they're they're already looking at this really seriously in europe uh, and so that if you go in to buy a durable good or even potentially an article of clothing it will have an expected lifespan uh, associated with it. So obviously it all depends on how you use your stuff. If you, you know, if you rarely cook and you own an oven, it's going to last a lot longer than, than if you cook three meals a day on that oven. But by comparing the expected lifespans, you know, we'd be able to choose and choose our price point. And I think it makes it a lot easier for people then to say, oh, actually, I'm going to spend that bit more money to get something that's going to last a little bit longer. Uh, because our default position otherwise is like, why would I spend more for this for an oven? You know, this one's cheaper. That one's uh, that one's more expensive. I'm going to get the cheaper one. But lifespan labeling might change our, our psychology around that. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I would imagine you'd probably see some pretty huge pushback from industry lobby. Right. I mean, yeah. how much, you know, <laughs> you're, you know, for us to, to expect corporations or manufacturers to get on board with less consumerism, it, it might be a bit of a sort of a rose colored idea, wouldn't you say? Well, you know, it's interesting because you're seeing it start to happen. I mean, Levi's is a company I talked to during the research for this book. And while I was writing the book, they changed their their approach from the classic corporate model of sell more stuff to more people to uh, they had a bit of a reckoning of their own during the pandemic and said, you know, we, we're working hard at reducing how much water goes into the production of our clothes and organic cotton and so on, it's not adding up to, uh, to the kind of sustainability effects that they were hoping for. Suddenly they thought, you know, we actually have to look at how, how do we sell less stuff? <laughs> so what they're doing, um, it, they, they launched a slogan in April. I think it's uh, buy better, wear longer, which is pretty close to uh, 
buy less, buy better, which is a slogan that a lot of people who are thinking about consumption have been applying. And I mean, when you see a company like Levi's looking at that and openly acknowledging on their website that that the garment industry is you know up to its neck and overconsumption, I see that as progress. That's a global brand recognizable to everybody on earth. Especially, I mean, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, when, when I think of Levi's, and again, this will all be shaped by their effective marketing over the years for sure. But I think of a, I think of a, I'm obviously not paid to say this. Let me just clarify. But when I think of Levi, <laughs> when I think of Levi's jeans, I think of relatively speaking a quality product. Not always the, I guess it depends on who's wearing them, but not always the sexiest jeans in the sense of they're not the uh, $350 jeans, right? They're not the $400 jeans. They're like the $80 jeans. But they're the ones that'll probably last. Everybody loves their red tabs. Everybody loves their 501s. Um, and so maybe the idea there might be, you know, a corporation like Levi's, you may, you know, that maybe they play on that, how they have this brand that has this reputation of, you know, Levi Strauss, and they've been around since the 1850s or something like that. Um, you know, if you're going to buy one pair of jeans every 10 years, make it a pair of Levi's and almost kind of shine the light outside of them. Uh, to other fashion manufacturers within their wheelhouse and say, if you're still wearing your true religions from six years ago, people are snickering at you. Like that's kind of the message they'll want to send, right? If you're Levi's. Yeah. yeah. I mean, clearly there is a, it's advantageous for them in, so, in some pretty clear ways to take this position if they want to be seen as a sustainable business. And a lot of businesses do, yeah. uh, they are perfectly placed to be a buy less, buy better kind of company. And also they're making the calculation that, well, okay, we can sell fewer new pairs of Levi's to our customers because that's the message we're going to send to them, uh, to each individual customer. But we're hoping that by positioning ourselves this way, uh, we will get a wider market share the way that Patagonia has by being, you know, almost like an, a counter consumer type company. So there's, 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 you know, there, it's a it's a complicated game that, that corporations play, but it's really interesting that there are now companies that are trying to compete on the basis of reducing uh, per person consumption. And you also see Levi's you know, following companies like uh, Eileen Fisher and Patagonia down the trail of of selling more and more of their products secondhand as well. Is so, that right? Yeah. Uh, Levi's is starting to sell secondhand. Patagonia has been doing it for a while. Uh, Eileen Fisher. There's a number of companies now, uh, I believe even Nord Nordstrom is, is, uh, is they're trying to get back the clothes that people have uh, bought from them when they're done with them. And if they're still usable uh, to, to resell them. And the crazy thing is <laughs> I went to a warehouse where this has happened, where the stuff comes in and is redistributed for secondhand. And it is not like secondhand the way that you or I might think of secondhand because half the stuff has never been worn. Some of right. you know, a lot of it still had the tags on it because people just buy so much, you know, so many articles of clothing now that, um, you know, they end up hardly using them or getting home and realizing they didn't want them anyway. And uh, so the secondhand stuff is often new. I, uh, I just, uh, why am I telling you this? This has nothing to do with anything, JB. <laughs> my 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 brother's like literally weighs fifty pounds less than me, and I have there's a whole section of my closet that's that's like my optimism section, um, 
that that when I when I get down to like, like the the lean svelte young man that I once was, uh, I'll be able to wear all these clothes again. And some of them still do have tags on them. And I had that exact thing where it was within this last year, and I finally just sent a bunch of it out to Vancouver because I was like, listen. <laughs> These need to get worn, <laughs> but I felt like when I was sending it to him that I was giving up on myself, but that, but I digress. That's my own personal thing that I got to deal with. Uh, but, but you're right. I mean, so many people have things laying around things sitting around. It's just, it's, it's an absolute indictment. I wouldn't even let, I would, you know, I'd love to have a beer with you sometime JB, but I would never let you come and, and look in my closet. And I would never, <laughs> I would never let you look in our garage because you'd probably be like excessive, excessive, ridiculous, excessive. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's just. Know. One of the interesting effects of working on this book was that I became a lot less judgmental about other people's consumption. Really? How? Um, really? Yeah. Because, well, because I realized through the process that, you know, why are we surprised that people consume so much? It's, you know, the, there's, t there's all kinds of forces that pressure us to do it. Uh, it's almost like a civic duty in terms of maintaining the economy. It's a, you know, we built what do we do? We get up in the morning, we go off to work to earn money. Uh, what are we supposed to do with the money? Buy things. I mean, it's it's the whole principle of how we've organized society. So we shouldn't be shocked that people are actually doing it and being consumers. Um, also, you know, I think it, people, including myself, tend to look at other people's consumption and say, oh, wow, yeah, that's outrageous. That stupid stuff that those people buy. Um, meanwhile, you know, uh, I fly all around the world, you know, doing both for my work and, and often for, for pleasure. I live a relatively simple life at home, but I've got my vices as well. So, um, I do think it's something that we're, you know, we're all participating in and we can all participate in, in, uh, in transforming it as well. Hmm. I've had, I had a conversation with our little man just yesterday. He's five and he was asking if, if, uh, he, he's learned to negotiate and he was asking if we could go to McDonald's. And I said, McDonald's is like a, I said, McDonald's, you don't just go to McDonald's like on a Monday, kiddo. You don't just, you know, you don't just go to McDonald's anytime and all this, that and the other. And he says, but I want a toy. And I went, aha. And so I said, so I pulled the vehicle over literally. And I said, I want to talk to you about something. I said, we've gone to McDonald's a couple of times in the last couple of months. I said, you haven't touched your fries. You haven't touched the burger. You want the toy. And I said, here's the thing. And I talked to him about brainwashing. I was like, they're trying to brain. I said, they're trying to brainwash kids. I said, the toys aren't even that good. And he didn't like hearing any of this. But I said, you, you know, I said, they're tricking you. I said, they're trying to trick you. And so you want to go to McDonald's where the food's not healthy, but they're trying to trick you with the toys, right? And he was kind of like, you could see him kind of sorting it out, right? And, and, but we're the same way as adults. We're easily manipulated. We're easily tricked. I mean, Larry right now is watching live. He says, consumer culture has entrenched the belief that our individual value is based on buying. It's how we justify our worth. And social media is brainwashing children, teens, adults to be either in style or a loser. Isn't that from Larry, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that, it's again, there's, there's concrete things we can do. There are countries, I believe Sweden is one of them, where they've placed tight limitations on how you can advertise and market to children. Because, yeah, maybe, you know, it's kind of like the, the kids. I'm, I'm unfortunately one of them who... Who were raised uh, without much in the way of McDonald's and a whole lot of uh, whole grain bread, uh, but I didn't enjoy that much as a kid. But it led me, uh, I think, to uh, to appreciate a healthier diet as an adult, and it comes just naturally for me to do that. Um, I was raised without television. I'm almost ashamed to, uh, mostly without television anyway, 
And, uh, you know, I don't really notice. I go to hotels and I go into a hotel room. I, it doesn't even, it doesn't even uh, you know, occur to me to turn on the TV as a way to pass time. So I think if you, if you, can, uh, if you can avoid driving children towards uh, consumerism, uh, then that's, that's one of the things we can do that might be hopeful in terms of reducing consumption. There's this great comment on our live chat. I'm scrolling back to try to find it, but uh, from one of our audience members who, who messages under some random guy uh, who basically said, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll have to paraphrase because I can't find it, but it basically said something. Oh, here it is. I think that there is such a thing as sustainable consumerism, but it relies heavily on removing things like single-use plastics and instating right-to-repair legislation. Uh, I, I just did a very quick Google on right to repair legislation. I do see that there's some inroads being made in the United States, um, and it's certainly a conversation. Um, I, I see our production team right now kind of perk up. I think we could probably do an entire segment on right to repair legislation. But would you concur? I mean, can can you see the point that some random guy's making here with regards to sustainable consumerism? Can there be such a thing if we make progress on things like single-use plastics or are you just going to take us right back to what you talked about earlier in the 1990s where we were trying to be able to you know we try to find ways to justify or eliminate the footprint of our activity yeah i think there's the that's the tension i mean i think there is something called sustainable consumption i'm not sure that there's something called sustainable consumerism mm. because consumerism is that mentality of more 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 and it it it's effectively impossible in my opinion to just constantly consume more to ask every individual to consume more to spread western style consumption to the entire rest of the world and somehow keep pace with it through innovations in in greening i think i mean it may not be impossible but i think the challenge is is uh is just absolutely enormous. And I would ask why even take on that challenge? I mean, we're, we're not gaining enormous degrees of life satisfaction or happiness from, from consuming after a certain point. So, uh, you know, are we, we, we consume 60% more clothes per person than we did 20 years ago. Are we 60% more satisfied with, with the clothing we put on our bodies? I don't think so. So what, I mean, what is the point uh, in pursuing, in, what's the point in trying to just green the model of consumption we have now? Why not look towards, uh, towards a model that, that reduces that consumption? And when I say reduces, I'm certainly not saying all consumption has to vanish. You know, I'm not saying that close the movie theaters and no toys for the kids. Um, we just need to walk this back to, um, to, to a more manageable scale. And we, there's plenty of countries around the world that are already living at a, sustainable, uh, at a sustainable level of consumption and with a high, de a high degree of development as classified by the United Nations. We live in a very high development nation. So that is a difference. There is a difference there. But you do have countries that are dramatically more sustainable in terms of their consumption that are rated at a high level of development. So um, that's there's there's hope in that. I visited one of those countries for the book. Well, before yeah, so before we, I was going to thank you for your time, but we have I have to ask, and what's this? What's the case study or what's the example? The country I went to was Ecuador, where the average citizen is consuming at what's considered to be a, a one planet level. If we all lived like the average Ecuadorian, we could do it on the resources of our one planet. Uh, and it, I mean. 
it, it was a level of consumption that would be familiar to a lot of people who grew up between the, the 40s and the 70s. It's not, you know, it's not the Stone Age. And that's when things like greening and efficiency and all these things can really make a contribution is uh, we can lower our level of, of consumption and then we can, uh, we can enrich that basically to the degree that we can innovate to make it sustainable. Um, so, you know, I think we've got the opportunity to make a really livable, satisfying society, uh, but one that's consuming considerably less than we are now. J.B. McKinnon is an adjunct professor of journalism at the University of British Columbia, an instructor in feature writing. He's an award-winning journalist. Uh, you can see his work in publications like The New Yorker, National Geographic, The Atlantic. You may have heard of them. And you can certainly check out his brand new book published this year, The Day the World Stops Shopping. You can find it anywhere you buy great books. J.B. McKinnon, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. You've given us a lot to think about, myself included, on a very personal level. I appreciate it. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. Yeah, take care, J.B. Uh, this is this is really neat. Um, Sarah, I noticed you be keeping uh, all of us keeping an eye on the live chat through this, and it's it's fascinating, right, to hear some people sort of you know people really dug in on that appliance example mm. you know talking about the, the sort of their their family's relationships and the sentimental attachments to appliances or the frustration when they break down how about this from michelle who says when a friend of mine replaced her dishwasher she was straight up they just told her they're designed with shorter lifespans because of technological advances and people want the newest thing <laughs> i don't know i think that's chicken and egg maybe have you ever talked to a farmer about equipment, this is when, when I think of right to repair legislation, mm. farmers are, I mean, if I can just paint with huge broad strokes and characterize everybody as <laughs> farmers are all the same. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> people love when you do that. Yeah, people love when you do that. Uh, no, but 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 there are so many farmers that are that for years, I mean, ever since they were kids, you know, they were out with with their parents or their mm. grandparents and turning wrenches and understanding how to fix things. And the last thing that many farmers would want to do is have to call like you got to have your equipment towed to the dealership or the dealer's got to bring a truck out to work on your equipment no i want to work on my equipment but you can't you yeah. cannot turn wrenches on a lot of new farm equipment it's the exact same thing with a because lot of, of other all the vehicles. automation and the, the well, computers and, and, that are put and, into and the it. computers and the yeah. way that they're built and some of the specialized equipment that you need mm. um, am i doing a good job of bluffing because i don't actually understand the, the the real intricacies of it all i know is i've had a lot of these conversations with farmers that yeah. many of them family members that, that are absolutely frustrated that they can't just pick up the part and fix it themselves i mean even even with your average well, what do you want to call it like a consumer vehicle like the average consumer level vehicle like I don't care if it's a if it's a twenty five or thirty thousand dollar car or a hundred and fifty thousand dollar car, if you pop the hood on a lot of vehicles now, like you're gonna change your air filter or you're gonna change your oil or you, you know you need to replace the starter really quick or I mean these are some things that you know you're not talking about uh, you know replacing the exhaust manifold these are things that people could have done in forty five minutes or an hour and a half and now it's like. You know, you open the hood of a new luxury car uh, or, or even any hybrid. I mean, like, really? You're going to go in there and start digging around? It's just not possible. Mm -hmm. That right to, we, we'll have to do a follow-up on right to repair. I, I don't know a lot about it. 
I mean, the, the name inherently explains kind of what it is. People should have access to parts and services and the right to repair, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine why manufacturers would be like, hell no. Uh, nope. Yeah. No, thank you. That means that people will keep their things longer and not buy things from us. I have a, in my previous home, it was built in the 1950s. It had the original furnace. And, you know, I kept being told, oh, it's going to break down. It's going to break down any minute. It's like when I got the... Uh, the inspector to come through before I bought it. And they kept warning me like, oh, it's going to go. It's going to kick the bucket. Well, never, we've had it. Never did. We had a furnace guy come in and tell us, he said, keep fixing this for as long as you can. Yeah. Right. He's like this previous generation of furnace. He's like the new ones just don't even stack up at all. Yeah. Right. Karen says, I've got a 16 year old white oven and fridge, a 20 year old deep freeze. I refuse to upgrade just to get stainless steel yeah. to match my dishwasher. <laughs> Karen says they just don't make them like they used to. I've got, you know, I've got a, you know, we, we love classic cars and we've got an old Cadillac and I, and I pulled up to a buddy's house the other day in the Cadillac and I, and I just got out and as I'm going to greet him, we got very close and hugged and I'll, no, I'm just kidding. But as Ew. <laughs> but I don't know why I had to throw that in there. I just, but so I get out and, and, and as I'm walking, you know, out of, away from the vehicle, I close the door and it's like, <sighs> Like when the door closes, right? It's a 1965, like, and he just goes, whoo, and he comes up and he's like, may I? I go, sure. So he opens up the passenger door and then, and he goes, wow, you just want to, boom, he wanted to close the door a couple times. And then I take an Uber a couple of days later, Toyota RAV4, I get into it. And I'm just like, weight wise, I just wasn't prepared for like, no offense to anybody driving Toyotas, but like, what a tin can. And so I get in and it was just muscle memory. And I'm like, bam, I like close the back door and the driver goes, easy, buddy. I'm like, well, and then I didn't want to be like, you know, your vehicle's a piece of shit. I was, I was just, I'm like, my apologies, but I like slammed it because I was just, I'd been driving the caddy for a couple of days. Like, it's just, it's totally different. Now people will say, yeah, but it's probably engineered to be great, better in a crash and this, that, and the other. And yeah, right. Hit me in my 65 caddy. Nothing's <laughs> happening to me. <laughs> Nobody died in motor vehicle accidents before the 1990s, did they? Just don't get your finger stuck in that door, slamming that door. True. Ooh-wee. Very true. Jen says we had to replace a six-year-old fridge. Had to replace it. Says I didn't care so much about the money as I did about the fact that this fridge was going to the landfill. How's that? You know, I mean, people are talking about lighting and, and, and washing machines and people are talking about fast fashion. Mawar just chimed in to say first time visiting. Hey, welcome to the show. Awesome to have you here. People are talking about how they've shopped consciously. Brenda says their community just recently held a mobile big bin event. Brenda says the the amount of newer looking appliances that were put in there. She says, I couldn't help but think of landfills and, and wonder if some of that metal could maybe be salvaged. Gilles says if, if producers like not you Hoyles, but manufacturers were responsible for the waste they create, They'd make, you know, much higher quality goods, but prices would also go up. Lalazaz has lifespan labeling. Careful what you ask for. It'll raise the prices to be sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, just but that's, the ra- that's the race to the bottom, right? That's the race to the bottom. Like we were going to get we're trying to get the lowest price 
which means we get lower quality and it's just we constantly are going lower 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 yeah um <laughs> nick says there goes your five-star uber passenger rating <laughs> you're out jesperson i'm actually pretty proud of my uber passenger rating i think i'm, I'm rated quite high as a matter of fact do you have it <laughs> as a matter of fact as a matter of fact although i haven't it feels like i haven't taken uber nearly as much as i used to but uh you know it's it's, it's important to have i'm gonna like, shock you here okay i do not have an uber account I, I actually don't know that I'm that shocked about oh, it. Oh, okay. Why, why do you not? I have a 4.94. <laughs> That's, come on. I need a fact check on that. 4.94. I, I can't because, because Emily can't, but you can, you can see okay, it here through okay. the plexiglass. Okay. Can you see it? Am I, oh, okay. it's am up I demonstrating top? any private information if I hold it up? But yeah, you, yeah it's... Uh, so your credit card is 5191. So your credit card is maxed out. And <laughs> so there you go. What, what is it with you and no Uber? Uh, I, 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 for some reason I'm like, no, I'm going to support who ca cabs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. What are you running for mayor? <laughs> not yet. No, I'm just <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I'm not looking to enrage the cab lobby. I actually, this is a huge, we don't have time to get into this. Do we? I mean, the cabbies I get cities across the country. I mean, Uber comes in. Uber is a bit of a bad actor with regards to how it, I don't even know if I really want to go on the record with all this, but you, you talk yeah, to people, people yeah. are barely scraping by the rates that drivers pay are exorbitant. There's, there have been a lot of complaints about the company structure, some of the executives at the company. It's also very convenient. Yeah. And a lot of people, speaking of consumerism or how we decide where we'll spend our money or where we'll give our money, for a lot of people, it's like uh, Uber doesn't treat employees well and they, they get paid you know, a pittance and we're like, but they can be here in three minutes and take me <laughs> right to my door. Perfect. That same thing with Amazon, right? Yeah. That people are like, 100%. I don't want to support Amazon. They don't, they are union busting. They don't pay their people well. They've worked them. They, people have to wear diapers. So they But don't. then you need an orange Every Child Matters t shirt tomorrow. And where do you get it? You go on Amazon and you get it, yeah. right? That's did, what you do. Did you, did you see that there's a, <laughs> there is a, um, Oh my gosh, words are escaping. So Bezos, Bezos is going into space, right? Okay. And people are saying there's actually a, when people sign, uh, petition, there's the word. They have a petition to not let Bezos back into earth. And it's got, oh, more, it's got more than 30,000 signatures so his, far. His ex-wife put it out there? <laughs> yeah. No, probably one of his em many employees. Yeah. I mean... Oh, man. Jeff Bezos isn't entirely different. But let me circle back on the cab thing. I here's the thing across Canada. And you saw it in Vancouver. You saw it in Calgary. You saw it in Edmonton. You saw it in Toronto. You've seen it in all these cities. Major protests like at city halls. I remember in Edmonton, cab drivers were there like ripping their shirts off and screaming. They had security in there in council chambers. They were furious that the city was allowing Uber in. And why? Because it was devalued. It's, it's obviously a direct threat. Uh, quite frankly, probably ultimately a devastating blow to the taxi industry. And in particular, these plates, these taxi plates, right? So to get a cab license is to, you know, they, they, it, it was, it was market rules. It was, I'm a free market guy. And those taxi plates were getting up to the point where people were, were second mortgaging their homes. People were, were taking out big loans. People were cash. People were tapping into their nest eggs to the tune of if, you know, anecdotally, people told me directly, I took calls. I spoke to presidents of cab companies. I talked to cab drivers. Trust me. In my, in my previous employ on AM radio, uh, I talked to dozens of them. 
that would say, I spent $175,000 or I spent $220,000 for my cab plate. And now I couldn't unload it for 40,000 or now I wouldn't be able to get rid of it for 25,000. And you go, oh man, oh man. Like I, um, that is, that's horrible. That's devastating. But is it the role of a municipal government to stop technology, to stand in the way of progress, to interrupt markets, to protect? Now, people are going to say, Jesperson, aren't your relatives dairy farmers? You really want to talk about supply management? Right? There's complications to all of these conversations. Nuances. It reminds me of a buddy that I went to high school with. As a matter of fact, I grew up with him. He and his dad, in the early 1990s, they pooled their money. You know what business they got into together? Payphones. How do you think that worked out for them? Oh. No bueno. But should they have been protected? Should, should, should their industry have been protected from, from the introduction of cellular phone technology? I don't think so. So that whole Uber versus cab thing to me, I understand why cabs are pissed. But hey, I can come to the table. So I, I worked in newspaper. I've worked in radio. Look how we're paying our bills now. You think terrestrial AM radio loves what we're doing? I don't think so. Mm. Right? I mean, at what point, what role do governments play in interrupting that progress? I love these conversations. Let's keep them going. If you and your community want to hold sort of a, a community bin opportunity, people to bring their stuff and, and get rid of it, people to get organized, people to purge, people to spring clean. You know where I'm going with this. This is amazing. What Thank a segue. You. Thank you very much. I recommend you visit localwaste.ca. They've been in the business for like 25 years. Not for like 25 years, for 25 years. Family owned and operating right here in the province of Alberta, but they're growing. You'll see them expanding into BC, Saskatchewan. There's actually some great entrepreneurial opportunities with local waste. If that's your jam, you're going to want to look up Mikkel, Lauren, and Chris. You can check out localwaste.ca, their website. And then, of course, also, they're finding solutions every single day for business owners, whether you're a, a sole proprietorship, a ma and pa shop, or a big, whatever, hotel, mall, whatever the case is, local waste has a plan because they're individually put together a plan built to help your business grow check them out online at localwaste.ca and a reminder on friday we present along with local waste trash talk you can send in your rants your raves your gripes in the form of an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com wanted to remind you that the team at westworld computers is powering this studio every morning and they want to do the same for your business as a matter of fact they've earned the trust and return business the loyalty of customers across the province and nationwide by way of their website for more than 40 years daryl and his family have been in the game including their team of technicians who have seen it all you can book your appointment for service or look into the sales side right now by visiting westworld.ca. A big shout out as well to the team at Eden Landscaping. Check this out at landscapeedmonton.ca. You can see examples of how they've worked with their partners to bring outdoor space to life. A custom landscape builder with more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area, whether it's a retaining wall, an outdoor kitchen, a swim spa, or, hey, Maybe just something to ramp up curb appeal before you list your house. I know a lot of people are doing that this summer. Give Mike and his team a shout. You can find all their contact information at landscapeedmonton.ca. That's Eden Landscaping, a proud partner of Real Talk. Sarah, when you booked this, it got me thinking. I, I realized that when it came to 
I suppose digital undertakers. Number one, I'd never heard of the profession, but number two, <laughs> I was ill prepared. Should anything happen, we we know we have to have a will. We know we have to think of these types of things. But how well organized are we? Yeah, I'm not. When it comes to what a digital undertaker does, nobody really probably thinks about this. Maybe because it's a new phenomenon, or is it? Let's find out. Sharon Hartung is the founder of Your Digital Undertaker. They provide digital executor consulting for advisors, clients, and the tech management aspects of digital assets in estate planning. This is fascinating stuff. Sharon, so grateful you've made time to join us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk. Thanks so much, Ryan. Uh, enjoyed listening to you guys. You're so energetic, so I'm looking forward to this conversation with you. <laughs> well, thanks very much. I mean, I guess in a way, um, th- this is not a word of a lie. I'm telling you God's honest truth. On Sunday, we gathered in the backyard. I was able to see my dad for the first time in a long time. And the conversation started going toward, and and, and they're healthy. They're good. They're great. I'm I'm hoping to have 25 more years with them. But we started talking about our wishes when it comes to burials or cremations or or, 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 our wills and estates. And I was like, I don't really, quite frankly, want to have this conversation, most especially on Father's Day. But probably more of us need to, don't we? Yeah, this is uh, just another literacy conversation we need to have, such as financial literacy. Now it's about our end of life wishes, literacy, and the pandemic has really um, brought a platform for us to have these conversations. Many of us have been touched by people who've been sick or died, uh, so we need to have the conversation. But technology gives us another way to have the conversation that's more friendly and interesting than our funeral arrangements. So can we talk about, I mean, you're the founder of Your Digital Undertaker. What... uh... What void did you perceive there to be and and how did you address it? How did this get on your radar before you started the company? Absolutely. It started very personally, like most people in in this conversation. My mom died without a will and uh, I had to become the executor of her estate. I'd apply to the court to be appointed as executor and I had no idea what I was doing. I had run some pretty big projects in my IT life and I felt like a junior project manager confused about what what I needed to do. So as I went through her estate, I met with uh, lawyers and tax accountants. I didn't realize I had to file my mother's tax return upon death and all these things we have no idea we have to do when we take on this big job. It sounds like an honor to do, and it is a privilege and honor to, to do it on behalf of a loved one, but it's a project. So I wrote my first book, Your Digital Undertaker, to talk about all the things we had to do from a project management perspective And as I reflected on my own personal circumstances, I realized I was lucky in spite of the challenge I had with my mother's estate, just the paperwork and taxes and and probate and all the words we don't know. um, I realized I had quite a large digital footprint and wondered if anybody had been looking at this space. And when I talk about our digital footprint, uh, you know, the industry calls it digital assets, which is not a friendly word. It's our memory, our money and our records. And if anything, the pandemic has shoved us all online and everything we do online. And so now our today's executor is a digital executor. And so our executor is going to need to know what we have in our digital lives and our personal lives. So Sharon, is this, is this like a digital take on your, on your last will and Testament, or is this, is this like what happens to my Instagram account when I die? How do you approach it? And what, what are your services encompass or what are people looking for? It's two things. So we have physical lives. So we, uh, we traditionally, everyone, 
pretty well knows what a will is, even though half of Canadians don't have one. Uh, a will basically tells our executor, uh, and it's legally recognized, it tells our executor what to do with the things that we have. So we, we think of our real estate, we think of our bank accounts, our investment accounts, and we may even have sentimental or emotional items like our our pets and our coin collections that we have to give directions to our project manager called the executor to deal with upon death. Now we've spent 30 years on the internet, arguably the last 10 and certainly in the last two years, we do everything online, uh, including uh, booking our vaccines and talking to our family doctors. And every time we deal with something online, it involves an account and, uh, and, our, and a computer or tablet or some way to get access. So the good news from an estate planning perspective is all the principles that we had to do before, like get a will, still apply for our Instagram and our LinkedIn profiles and our Facebook. But we have a little more work to do in the sense of we've got to go back and revise our wills to give the executor direction. You know, the will says deal with the physical property rights. Now you need to deal with your digital life. So it gives our executor powers. And then we need to spend a little more time having a conversation with our executors because when they walk into your home office, whether that's a kitchen table, of, uh, you know, we don't have paper statements anymore. So how is our executor even us supposed to find what we have physically? Never mind dealing with our Instagram and LinkedIn profiles. What do you, is it different for I mean, I imagine when it comes to mourning people, um, you know, we lost a, a dear friend in, in a, a terrible car accident about 10 years ago and people gather, I mean, on the anniversary of her death and as a matter of fact, on her birthday too, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like on her profile and people just share memories and things like that. And I think that if the profile yeah. were to disappear, um, I, people probably would be devastated. And, but I also understand that there are, well, how do I put it? Some, there's some awkwardness or, or there's some discomfort, um, you know, uh, I'm reminded of a friend's birthday prompted on Facebook every year and he's no longer with yeah. us. And it, it kind of slaps me in the face every time. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled to remember him, but you know, I mean, there, there, what, what, there's probably not one formula or one approach that you can prescribe to everyone. Is there? Well, let's start with something simple like social media. Most people, they say 70% of North Americans have a Facebook account. Younger people would never admit they have one, but they probably have one to just keep in touch with their parents. Right. And then they have other accounts. So let's start with social media. Social media not only is a form of communication, but it's a form of sharing photos and it becomes very significant upon death because that is often the place we share memories. Um, in fact, Facebook was one of the first companies to provide pre-planning. Pre-planning is just a word for something you can set up in advance. So you can go into your settings on Facebook and you can select the legacy contact and you can choose to be memorialized. Right. The other choice you do have, again, while you're living, is you can say, no, I want my account deleted on death. So even something as simple, logging into Facebook, making that choice. Google also has something similar. They were the other big tech giant to put in some pre-planning, things you can do while you're living. Uh, they have quite a significant number of choices, given they have YouTube and, and different and Nest cameras and all sorts of things attached to your profile. Again, you log in. Under settings, where you should be checking your privacy settings from time to time, uh, they have a function called inactive account manager. That allows you to specify who will get access to your data uh, upon death, and they have a period of time that your account can be inactive, three months to 18 months. And last week, Apple announced that they are going to be rolling out a digital a legacy program as well. 
So we should see that in the fall when they release uh, another ISO update. Now you don't have to be an Apple user to realize that when the big tech giants start to provide these functions, it means that users in the marketplace, people want the opportunity to uh, make the choice, leave the photos online so someone can, can my family can uh, celebrate my life, my friends and family can celebrate my life or delete them. Because some accounts we may choose to delete, some accounts we may choose to transfer and some accounts uh, we may want to just leave the photos accessible for people. So starting with social media is a great place to start. Hmm. And then the second thing, which is important is once you make that choice, have a conversation with your executor and your family so they're aware that you've made those choices. Yeah, I've, I've always thought that uh, upon my death, I'd like my Twitter account to release all of my saved drafts and say everything I didn't have the guts to say when I was alive. Just the day after I die, there's going to be like 300 tweets that are going to go out and just I hope it provides some entertainment for people. What happens if people just absolutely ignore this? What, what happens if people don't hear this? They haven't seen your book. It's not something they've paid attention to. Maybe even people that have been, been quite diligent in preparing a will, but this is just something that, that they've ignored. They do, do, you, do you see this becoming a real issue uh, either now or down the line? It's already becoming an issue. So we see uh, the the odd court case played out in the news where some a family member can't get access to something. So right. these are steps we now need to take. Uh, there's two main things that will happen if you do nothing. Uh, at some point in time, the account will entropy because, as we know, a lot of the service providers who have terms of service that we we click through and uh, we we agree to, um, you know, they don't want to store all that data. So more than likely, a lot of these accounts will end up uh, disappearing that have data in them. Social media tends to linger around, and as the example you gave, it you know it prov provides an uncomfortable situation down the road where you're, you know, you're re recommended to connect with someone on an anniversary when they're passed away. So the first thing it will do is it create some uncomfortableness. In, in a worst case, it will create uh, uh, you know, a real, real family contention because you can apply to some of these service providers and say, hey, I want the account memorialized or deleted. You could have a fight among family members about whether it should have been memorialized or deleted when a simple conversation in advance could have rectified that. So we need to take control. We, uh, we're the first generation to deal with this. So the fact that a lot of people aren't aware is, is not a surprise, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, the even the estate industry has been talking about this for only about 10 years, but consumers are like, yeah, 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 I just have an email, it's not a problem. But we do everything online. If anything else, the pandemic has accelerated this conversation and we need to uh, make some provisions now. Yeah, also nobody thinks that they're gonna die right away, right? right I mean, right. you sort of think that, you know, if you're, if you're a healthy middle-aged adult, let alone a young person, you know, Will's probably not even on your radar. It's, I, was, I was a little surprised to hear you say that half of Canadians don't have a will prepared, but I guess if you yeah. think about it, it's, it's believable. It's believable. I mean, it's a project that doesn't have an end date. We don't know when it's going to happen. So what do we do with projects with no end dates? We just kind of push them off. But this is an important conversation and a cross-generational conversation. And, and I encourage now, because we use technology, it's a lot you know, more interesting to talk about Hey, mom and dad, you know, we have a Facebook account. This is what I've done for mine. What are you going to do for yours? And then it's an opportunity to share with your, your family and friends and, and bring this literacy conversation to the table so we don't have the tra tragic circumstances of what people don't know what to do. I don't know why I'm just like, I'm just giggling almost thinking of some of these conversations. It's like, you know, <laughs> sweetheart, what's your plan for? Well, I'm going to keep up my photos, but I'm going to have all my DMs deleted. Uh, people are going to go, how come? Uh, maybe I should have access. Oh, what's yeah, going yeah. on here? There's going to be some awkward moments here, right? 
Oh, no, I had my whole account wiped. I couldn't have any family members seeing what was on there, right? Oh, I would imagine but that consumers, just... consumers have, uh, have, I think, a little work to do as well. So I talked about the three <laughs> giants that have pre-planning. Uh, LinkedIn quietly provided some functionality where the executor can go and apply to LinkedIn to memorialize or delete your account. But the, you know, I'm hoping that LinkedIn will provide pre-planning so we can choose in advance. So your, your executor now has a question to figure out. Instagram is the same thing. Twitter has no provisions. In, in theory, your account will be deleted upon death uh, because no one has complained to Twitter that uh, we need some pre-planning functions too. So I think consumers in the marketplace uh, certainly need to start uh, voicing their concerns. I know the death positive movement have been very vocal. I know that the the topic is gaining a conversation because, uh, you know, when Twitter announced, uh, I think in 2019, they were going to shut down inactive accounts. There was a, you know, a whole fury on Twitter and Twitter reacted by saying they would not delete inactive accounts, you know, said they were considering pre-planning. And when I look at how Twitter light lit up around Apple's announcement. Again, you don't have to have Apple to know that it's significant that people are starting to think about needing an ability to plan in advance. So we don't have to guess if your DM needs to be deleted or not, or you have options to deal with your uh, Twitter. Yeah. Sharon, what's the death positive movement? The death positive movement is um, a, a bunch of individuals in the, um, the broader end of life space. So we tend to think of them as a palliative movement. Um, but it in, encompasses uh, funeral homes and people that are thinking about the fact that we need digital literacy. We need a more proactive conversation and a healthier conversation about death. And um, yes, it's morbid and, and bereavement happens, but there are conversations that we can have in advance about our wishes. Uh, uh, medical advances have made it possible for us to live much longer than probably we did 100 years ago. So do we want to, you know, what are our choices at end of life? Uh, from a healthcare, uh, someone taking care of us uh, during our healthcare, and then what wishes do we have upon death? And that encompasses our digital lives too. Uh, how do we want to be moralized? So the death positive movement is really about digital literacy, digital advocacy. Um, there are pretty strong death positive movements in the US, in the UK, and certainly now in Canada. Uh, even in Canada, we have new roles, end of life doulas, death doulas. Douglas yeah. College offers a program around end of life doulas, and these are companions. Uh, at end of life to help you make those choices. Do you want to die at home? Do you want to die in a hospice? Do you want to die in a hospital? And then uh, helping people encouraged to create their healthcare directives, you know, who will act for them on their behalf. And then obviously the, the hygiene of our estate plans, which is getting a will done. Um, Boy, is that ever, I mean, that's a calling, right? A death doula. Right. That's a yes. calling. Yeah. That's, yes. that's, that's uh, not it, a, that's not a nine to five job. No. Uh, that's a, that's a, a very uh, you, you you have to have some instinctive uh, ability to do that and to be able to care for people in addition to the the process pieces which are the paperwork. Um, I was asked by the End of Life Doula Association to help them create their standard of practice and met some pretty tremendous people that are committed in the space. And Douglas College teaches that course. If anyone's interested in becoming an end of life doula, some countries call it death doula. Some countries call it end of life doula. I like death doula. I like that. I, I like that. It's like, I mean, it, it sort of sounds like angel Claire. of death. It sounds like angel of death, but there's, there's no BS around what you do. And the word death, here's where I get all esoteric. Uh, but the word death is, it, it, it's like there, there's tragedy and sadness many times and, and heartache and everything, obviously, but it's also kind of like in a way, 
do I even believe what I'm about to say? There's there's a certain beauty to it, like the life and death and legacy and I don't know. I mean, there's no, there's nothing beautiful about a car accident that claims the lives of a young married couple and their toddler. There's nothing beautiful about that. But I, I think that, I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying in a way? It's a companion. It's comfort. It's yeah. someone who can help you explain how you're feeling, you know, if, if, um, if you get sort of a, um, a terminal diagnosis. It can help somebody navigate the emotional part of it, um, engage bereavement services, help your family navigate it. And then certainly, you know, if, if you, you get a devastating announcement like that, you're not going to be feeling very well. And there's a lot of things that need to be get, get done. So they can help facilitate some of the paperwork so that you can get to focus and processing and spend as much quality time with your family as possible. Yeah, well said. Uh, Sharon Hartung is the author of Your Digital Undertaker, Exploring Death in the Digital Age in Canada. Also, the newly released Digital Executor, Unraveling the New Path for Estate Planning. You can follow Sharon on Twitter at Undertaker Tech. We, of course, link to all of our guests' Twitter handles uh, with our daily tweet from our new account, Real Talk RJ. I don't know what will happen with that account upon my death, Sharon, but now you've got me thinking about it. Thanks for your time and your insight today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ryan. Great conversation. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks very much. Wow. Interesting stuff. I I could see you digging at something where uh you were you were like hard you know away working on something while i was talking to sharon where you like can i do i know you well enough to suspect that you were perhaps investigating policies of tech platforms when it comes to end of life wishes yes that did and, you find anything interesting and death doulas um death doulas yeah we've got to talk to a death doula wait, you know absolutely. what we should do why don't we do a round table or not around you know it can just, just be two voices but why don't we have a, a birth doula or a doula and a death doula a doula duel uh a a duo of doulas and we'll and we'll talk about life like a duel like you duel them like you're jousting we could put them pit them against each other but i would prefer to just pick their brains and like what maybe what if we what if we find somebody that does both what if you go from a birth to a death over the course of a day or a death to a birth whoa right i don't know so yes i was also looking up what are my settings (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, so it was a selfish exercise. Yeah, it, was, it was only for you. It was also... Would you share with us what you found so we can all... Um, are you wanting my share? Uh, yeah, I'd mean... just like you to give us your Facebook password and just basically <laughs> share with us some of the information so we could check out your personal just, just, settings. Just so we could do that. Does Facebook have something? That's what you looked at? Uh, yeah, it actually does. And um, so we've got... I, don't, I should pull it up here. Because um, I was like, okay, where are these pre-planning settings? Where are they? And it's actually... It's not called pre it's not called pre-planning. It's called memorializing. And so I went in and it's called memorializing memorialization settings. Decide what happens to your account after you pass away. And then you can go in and you can edit it. And then it asks you to choose a friend to be the legacy contact. And I was like, oh boy. So then mm. I kind of had to go, who would I who would I Yeah put there and then i was like oh I'll, I'll put my sister and then i was like oh wait she's not on facebook anymore she deleted right. her account yeah a lot of my friends have, have ditched facebook um we uh, can i can i let me let me read this this is this might be boring but it was this is uh, a conversation i was having yesterday as a matter of fact with our managing director of our of, of this company 
and a lot of the sort of the boring business conversations we have, we're always looking for ways to expand our footprint, to grow our audience, all these types of things. And we've determined this. Uh, if you are utilizing Facebook in, in the sense of their Facebook podcast distribution train, always read the fine print. When it comes to Facebook's podcast distribution train, listen to this. License to podcast content. Imagine if this was us, okay? Imagine if we were on Facebook for this. You grant Facebook the non-exclusive, royalty-free, worldwide right to use, market, promote, advertise, display, reproduce, create derivative works of, cash, transmit, distribute, make available, including stream and download, store, sub-license, and publicly perform or communicate to the public the podcast and related materials, including without limitation, sound recordings, musical compositions, any other content embodied in the podcast, cover art, artwork, graphics, written work, images associated, names, likenesses, trademarks, logo, biographical materials, and other identifying materials associated with the applicable podcaster, me, other information relating to authorship, production, performance, metadata, name, host name, episode name, names of participants, collectively the podcast content. No, thank you, you greedy bastards. That is unbelievable. No fucking way. I'm like, that was just yesterday. We just, we hard stopped one of the things we've been working on. Forget about it. You want to find us, ryanjesperson.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're at least not yet. We're not getting screwed. And then, of course, you can subscribe to our podcast anywhere you find it. Wild stuff. That's like... That's not even like, you know, Facebook would like to do whatever. It's like, no, we're going to absolutely take everything. We own you. We, like, it's not enough that you're giving us all of your personal information so we can sell that to advertisers. Yeah. Now we're also going to take everything you're creating... Right? Forget about it. I'll we don't take need that, that. And I'll take that. Do thank not you, need thank that. You, thank you. On Death Doula's uh, Rhythmus says, you mean like a priest? I mean, maybe. I mean, for some people, a priest walks in the room when they're on their deathbed. They're going to, you know, the water's going to start boiling. Deborah, can you imagine this when it comes to people's wishes, their last wishes, their final will and testament? Says, my mother, Deborah, this is amazing. Her mother wanted body worlds. Have you seen this? Remember the traveling show that goes to like science centers across around the world, as a matter of fact? The traveling show where the bodies have been preserved through the process of plastination. Did you go see that? I did. It's 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 a hell of a thing. There, it really like is. Horses and, and dogs and humans. There's humans. You're like, that is a human. That's a human. Or it was, or it is. It's it's human remains. What do you say? It's the body. Even the way you wrap your mind and think around the body, like mm. the body is, right? Especially, I mean, maybe not especially, but for, for people with a spiritual sense, the body is was the vessel. The body, the spirit is gone. The, the, the body, you know, and for maybe people view it differently. But still, if human remains are ever desecrated, or dist- I mean, there's, there's provisions in the criminal code to specifically prosecute people for, for how they treat human remains, right? Yeah. Murder one plus... The charge. I mean, th- as a society, 
And of course, it goes much further than that, not just criminal acts. But, but as a society, the, the body is not just, it's the, the, the chip bag, the wrap, the candy wrapper. <laughs> the packaging. The, the body, like, we, you know. But, but again, that's culturally. I told you about this. It was somewhat of a personal conversation with my parents over the weekend. And we were even talking culturally. You know, within religion or outside of religion, in some religions, the idea of there, there could be a certain pushback or at least a certain hesitation around something like cremation. Mm. Right. People may have religious sensitivities around something like cremation, uh, whereas, you know, in a country like India, for example, um, bodies would be, uh, you know, burned oftentimes with with other bodies um, out in the open. You know, with fire, some, yeah. you know, in a, in a fire right by the side of the river. And that's that's culturally the way that it's done there. And there's different they ways to do that on Game of Thrones. Also a valuable contribution <laughs> to this conversation. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry. That's just I, all I could think about. I just Game couldn't of get into I couldn't get into Game of Thrones. I just I can I, I know everyone's going to judge me, if you will. But I just can't. No, I had huge hesitancy and I was like, I'm not I'm not I'm not yeah. going to do it. I'm not going to follow and get it get sucked into the trend. And, and then, then you did. And then I did. You don't strike me as a Game of Thrones type I know person. I'm not a fantasy. I'm not really into fantasy, yeah. but this, I mean, it's history. What? <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Whose who's ad am I going to just go hot into on this? <laughs> you know what else is history? People's hesitation around solar installation in their homes. Right? That's because technology is getting better. And more affordable, plus battery storage is more accessible now than ever. But don't take my word for it. Talk to Jake and his team at Kubi Energy. You can find them online. Check this out at, at kubienergy.ca. What I love about their homepage, what you're going to see right there, that's the Edmonton Convention Center. That's an installation that Kubi Energy did on one of the most prominent elements, this cascading waterfall-esque type building when it comes to Edmonton's south-facing skyline. That entire installation is solar panels. You can do the same thing for your house, your business, plus many other applications. If you want to know what's new, and you want to find out how you can budget to move forward in your sustainable energy journey, give Jake and his team a shout. You can find them online at kubienergy.ca. Also online under the Sponsors tab on our website, you'll find St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. The best part about them right now, if you talk to any auto dealer right now, you talk to any salesperson that's being honest with you, they're going to tell you that because of microchips, you know, the pandemic and, and other contributing factors, uh, selection just isn't where it typically is on car lots. So number one, Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge have had the better selection than any of their competitors locally for quite some time, but they've also got the luxury of being able to share inventories. So you want a certain vehicle that may not be on this lot, they'll get it to you from the other lot. You can check out inventory online, book a sales call, or inquire about other services, including their talented team of technicians at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Also, a big shout-out to the team at Park Power. You know by now how proud we are to partner with the team at Park Power because of what they give back to the community, their profit-sharing model that they've been doing since inception almost 10 years now at parkpower.ca electricity natural gas and internet services if you sign up today you can compare their rates and everything it's a great resource use the promo code 2021-realtalk 2021-realtalk for $70 off your first bill at parkpower.ca I love this from Miranda she says hey if I die and Miranda, you can even go so far as to say when. I'm not being morbid, but we're all going to. Uh, when I die, uh, just party and dance all night. No funeral, thank you, for me. No funeral for me. Which I think, 
that's that's kind of more along the lines where I'm at. I, I don't I don't want a bunch of sadness. I, I mean, there's going to be sadness, but I and, and I don't. Everyone's different. There's no right or wrong. There's no right or wrong. I don't want a big casket at the front. I do not want a viewing. I mean, unless I look, if I'm looking devastatingly handsome, then maybe. But put up a nice framed photo. Tell some funny stories. Get into it a little bit. Have some fun. You know, that, that's what I'd love. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, Haas says, put me in a Folgers can. I'll be good. And you're gone, right? You're gone. I don't know. This is just my personal perspective. You know, I, it's tough to talk about end-of-life wishes, isn't it? Because it's your end-of-life wishes. Isn't that mean? I mean, it'll be somebody else's. And for many people, understandably, this is a very personal conversation, right? With big implications. I mean, people talk about it's your final resting place. There's a lot to it. Mm-hmm. Even the thing about cremation, it would be different for different people. Cremation with a with a headstone or grave marker somewhere or a park bench or do you need somewhere to go to remember the person? Are you always remembering the person? I mean, everyone's going to be different on that. Yeah, I'm I the closest death to well, there I've I've experienced lots of deaths recently, but um, my grandfather, I was about seven or eight, and he actually got his body donated to science, to mm. a universe, local university, so they would use it for research. And I was like, what? But what? Where Where are we going to go then? What are we? What? And so we, we got uh, a little placard built and put on the side of a little creek in, this, in the Ontario little small town of Grand Bend. It eventually got destroyed by some, somebody. Somebody burnt it at one point. And <laughs> so it's gone. So I don't know. And then with my dog, um, it was like, I at first said, no, I don't want the remains. I said, well, what am I going to do with them? Um, We'll bury them in the backyard. And I was like, but then I'm abandoning Emma. Like when you move, when I move. So at first I thought, no, I would not get her remains. And then the, the person, you know, talked me through it and I decided to get, her remains and they are sitting in my bedroom (laughs) and a little cardboard box with her name on it yeah and i'm guess what i'll do is i guess what my plan is right now is that she'll get buried with me oh wow yeah and i'll just so i'm everywhere i move from now until my demise emma's remains are, are traveling with me but we're like, I'm talking to my parents. I think that's beautiful, Sarah. Hmm. I'm talking to my parents on the weekend, and they're telling me, I mean, that's like, I'm not saying, okay, here, here's the, so not all funeral directors, okay? But my dad's saying to me, you know that they're selling, and this, I'm sure it's a thing. I wouldn't put it past anybody. Like, they sell jewelry now. They're selling jewelry to tell you you can bury your loved one with jewelry. Of course they are. You want to bet that jewelry doesn't even make it into the casket, by the way? Like, oh, yeah, we, yeah, that... The string of diamonds you bought? Yep, it's in there. Yep. <laughs> uh, may I see it, please? Oh, unfortunately, we've already buried them and exhuming the, you know. Come on. I love this from Patrick. Put, put my body in the ground and plant a tree on top to memorialize me. I agree. And as you go, the tree grows and people, yeah, very cool. I'm thinking of Shel Silverstein, the giving tree right now. It's like, in my mind, the best book in the world. So 
Um, we wanted to leave some time for emails, and these are so random. You're going to go. They literally talked about end of life wishes into cougars and, and 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 large cats in city centers, but that's what we're doing because we get all these great emails, and then we have these compelling and captivating conversations, and we don't read your emails, and then you're going, well, why am I writing them in the first place? Well, Marilyn, the reason why you write them is because you never know when you might hear your email. Marilyn says, Ryan, it was so interesting to hear your cougar story the other day. Long story short, I saw a cougar in the middle of the city a couple of years ago. Right now, someone's going to go, it was a Maine Coon. It wasn't a Coon. It was a Maine Coon. I brought on a wildlife biologist from the University of Alberta to take a look at my video and verify it was a cougar. It was a cougar. And Marilyn says, 30 years ago. When I had just moved to an acreage in Sherwood Park, I used to drive into work early and I'd go up Highway 21. This is a local reference for those of you in, in northern Edmonton familiar with the metro Edmonton region. Highway 21 passed Baseline Road to the Yellowhead Trail. Uh, one early morning, I'm the only car on the road and I'm approaching the top of the hill on the highway. And houses weren't built out quite yet to that corner and, and to my left, barely a building site. Anyway, a large animal ambled across the highway in front of me, maybe about 75 meters ahead of me, and went into the ditch and toward the building site. And I never saw it again. This was These were the days before cell phones or ability to take a photo on the fly, but it was a cougar, says Marilyn, and I was stunned, wondering who would ever believe me. It turns out nobody did. And over the years, she said, the Sherwood Park News would post these blurry photos of similar sightings, but more like in the countryside and on acreages, even photos of paw prints confirmed to be paw prints from cougars. And, and Marilyn says, hearing your encounter made me finally feel legit after all these years. She says, P.S. I love being able to catch up with real talk as my day allows over lunch while I'm on the treadmill, says Marilyn. Thanks very much. Whenever you hear this, thanks for writing in. I wrote her back, by the way, personally. I, I said, Marilyn, for like the last two years, I felt like somebody that saw a UFO. Where, you know, it's like I saw a UFO and you're like, gosh, I thought you were smarter than that. <laughs> oh, you're like, Ryan. no, like I honestly did. It's, oh, yeah. oh, Ryan. My own wife, my life partner, my soulmate still to this day does not believe <laughs> that that was a cougar that I saw. <laughs> Ross wrote in. Uh, he wrote in after we spoke with Constable Tad Milmine from the Calgary Police Service. He said uh, Tad is an out proud gay police officer and he talked to us as part of a conversation about police and pride and ross said interesting interview with the cop i noticed he said the quiet part loud the most intolerant aspect of his diversity story was his own lgbtq2s plus cohorts ross says i thought you'd pick up on that fascinating narrative slip he says, thanks for the Real Talk Forum. Keep hitting them straight. That from Ross. I think I did pick up on it. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, but but that was an interesting comment, wasn't it, from the, from the constable who who wears a pride, like a little sort of a little patch. Mm-hmm. Um, he's 365 days here, at least when he's on duty, he said. Um, not just for pride, not just for pride month. But he wears that to identify himself, I suppose, as an ally or as a gay man um, and uh, a gay police officer. And, uh, and and we asked about the impact that had and if, if it, it, you know, not physically, I don't mean literally, but if it disarms people emotionally or mentally, um, people that may be adverse to a police presence. I mean, that's the whole premise of banning police at Pride. And the constable shared with us 
I mean, what did he say? He basically said that he's been called by other gay men, in particular, a, a traitor. A traitor. Those were his words. Yeah. Right. For 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 serving as a police officer, as a gay man, for serving, he was a traitor. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was fascinating. And that was a really interesting element of that conversation. And you can find that online. Of course, it's wherever you find our podcast or our YouTube channel. Darren uh, was was uh, paying attention to a conversation about pride and pride tape. I want to remind you that if you are uh, in the same neck of the woods that we are, I'm partnering with Mercer Tavern for another week or so. Jespo's best summer ever pizza right now for sale. It's an amazing pizza pie. Uh, designed it myself. Very proud of it. It's shrimp, pesto, What's on it? Shrimp, pesto, crispy bacon, and feta. Woo! And uh, and and proceeds or a portion of proceeds are going to go to Pride Tape, and you can check out PrideTape.ca for more on that. Um, he, Darren says I wanted to. He says I've been catching up on day old podcasts on my morning walks, and he says uh, with Pride Tape, he said I thought it was really great. You've been talking about inclusion in sports. And he says it was an initiative born, Ryan, in your home city, mine as well, of Edmonton. And it's blossomed not only across the NHL, but around the world. He says, my own pride tape story is very brief. He says, I was involved in the early stages of helping create the visuals for the campaign. How cool is that? I'm going to call up pridetape.ca right now so people can check it out if you want. You can look at it at home as well. It's a it's hockey tape to support young LGBTQ2S plus hockey players. Uh, so, so Darren was involved in the early stages of it. He says, I got my hands on some tape and was happy to add it to my hockey bag to, to apply it to my stick. And as a straight white guy with gay friends, I was like, yeah, okay, no biggie. But the beginning, in the beginning, I found myself convinced that that if I walked into the rink with my stick in hand, taped up with pride tape, that people were seeing the tape and casting judgment. He says, I knew it was all in my head, but the parallels were not lost on me of how somebody who was from the community would feel as they walked into a rink. The shadow of not knowing how they'd be received on the ice, on the bench, in the locker room. And he said, since then, it became abundantly clear to me why something like pride tape is so important. And I'm proud to tell you that I still rock that tape every time I skate. He says, plus nothing tweaks a speedy forward more than a blue line poke check from the power of the rainbow. He says, thanks. Keep up the real talk. Thanks for keeping me in the loop. And Darren says, please ignore any typos. I'm typing as I walk. I love that. He's on his morning walk, sending an email to the show. How great is that? Well, we actually, um, is that in his email that he refers to wanting to hear about the, the NHL and seeing how they have inclusion? And so we actually, I, I followed up on that and we're going to have an item on that, an item, a segment, an interview um, about that on upcoming on Monday, oh, which, great. which I also find really interesting because just yesterday, the NFL, um, who is the player? He, he came out, he said um, Carl Nazib Naz- Naz- of the uh, Las Vegas Raiders announces he is gay and then he uh, and that he is the first active NFL player to ever come out as gay. Amazing. So yeah, we're going to follow up on that. There so have been athletes that have that have retired from yes. pro sports and have then come out. It's somewhat unusual to have it's very unusual. Yeah. Um, and I hope it becomes more, more common. Yeah. Especially in these sports like NFL football. It's like there's gay dudes playing NFL football, you know, but but you can understand. I mean, the culture around it. So that's Brock McGillis, right? Hockey player that we're talking to. We'll be talking to. um, That'll be next Monday. I'm looking forward to that. I'm glad to hear that you you confirmed that. How about this? We've talked about racism in healthcare, and Kathy sent us. This is a pretty powerful email. As a matter of fact, she just sent this last night. Says I was just treated uh, 
at a community hospital for a migraine, and and I was sent home uh, at three in the morning. It, it was uh, jarring enough for a middle class, middle aged woman with resources to get myself home, but it was a really busy night in Emerge. And when I was waiting for my cab, a young indigenous woman came outside and asked me which way she should start walking to get to Edmonton. She's at a hospital about 45 minutes outside the city. She says she'd been brought to the hospital, I'm assuming by the RCMP, there was an officer right there. And when she was discharged in the very early pre-dawn morning of National Indigenous People's Day, she was told to walk home. As a matter of fact, I saw one person laugh at her request for a cab voucher. It's 50 kilometers to the city center of Edmonton from this hospital. Kathy says, I had $40 in my purse and I gave it to her so she could call a cab. Says the security guard who had been unkind to her had to see the $40 before he'd make the call. Kathy says, this is not a proper response. He was a jerk to her. He didn't have to be. She was not being a problem. Her ask was literally the same one that I had made earlier. Kathy says, I'm mad. And somebody needs to speak up and call out this type of thing. Ambulances, police routinely take patients to hospitals way out of their neighborhood if those ERs have shorter wait times. The ambulance trip is covered for low-income folks, but we can't cover their cab fare back to the city or maybe let her sleep in a back corner of the ER, I don't know, until buses are running and then maybe provide cab or bus fare. Kathy says, I would never be asked to walk home 50 kilometers, Ryan. Neither would you. This is racism. I love your podcast. I love your willingness to wade into things we'd rather overlook. Thank you. That from Kathy. Wow. And I wanted to read this to you as well. This is from my dad, Dr. Bruce Jesperson. Sir Johnny McDonald, father of Confederation, has been run out of Charlottetown on the flatbed of an old government pickup where he sits in effigy, alone and disgraced, on the commemorative park bench he formerly occupied downtown. He strikes a fatherly figure sitting at an angle, his legs crossed, one arm draped over the back of the bench as if to invite Canadians passing by to take a seat. Beside the bunch of incongruous flowers put there, presumably by an admirer, and have a conversation about Canada, this new land of ours with its great promise. But for notions of white cultural superiority, indigenous children, their ancestors having roamed and lived off this place for thousands of years, not waiting for us to arrive, were assigned instead to the bitter irony of the infamous residential school program and its eventual 150-year legacy of exclusion and early mortality in the name of civilization, not theirs, ours. Whether or not the rate of child mortality was known to be the key marker that it is for the advancement of a culture, apparently, furtive burial and just carrying on was the method of dealing with the evidence. The father of Confederation, architect of this deadly program for children, those last four words describing, in fact, their unthinkable, absurd reality, deepens the irony as he and his government become surrogate parents, as it were, to indigenous children forcibly removed and alienated from their own families. We now know from the findings in Kamloops what was long known amongst indigenous people, how sadly this experiment turned out for the children 
who endured treatment that was criminal, calloused, and incompetent. The hubris and foolishness of it all takes one's breath away figuratively and literally. This isn't the stuff of a hero, or at least not the one long lauded as our first prime minister. Banishment of his statue from the public square removes his monumental achievements and rightly tarnishes his reputation. In our outrage, we might keep in mind our own capacity for bad ideas or plain wrongdoing against others, even and especially the vulnerable. Now, from my dad. You can send us an email anytime by visiting talk at ryanjesperson.com. And, of course, we keep an eye on our hashtag, RealTalkRJ. I don't want to admit it, but almost 24 hours a day. We love to hear from you as the podcast resonates with you or as you watch live each and every morning. Before we go, we want to reiterate how grateful we are to have partners. We call them our Real Talk Builders that make these conversations possible each and every day. They've joined us on our journey, and that includes the team at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. If there's anything that we can say here, it's that both Sarah Hoyles and myself have been feeding our furry family members, our beloved pups, quality raw food from grand dog essentials way before we partnered with them here on real talk if you check out granddog.ca you'll be able to learn more about specific nutritional advice they can provide for your pup in particular it is not a one size fits all scenario and you can see they've got beef and chicken and turkey they've got supplements and right now with the promo code real talk You'll be able to get 10% off your first time order. They deliver to your door as well in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta around Red Deer. We give our personal stamp of approval to Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. You want to feed your family healthy as well, and there's no store that's been doing it better across the province of Alberta providing quality Alberta-grown produce and protein than Friesen Brothers. For more than 65 years, this legendary family-owned company has been a huge player, a huge community members in now 16 Alberta cities and towns, including their beautiful brand new location in South Edmonton. Check out Friesen Brothers today for some amazing ideas on how you can ramp up what you're offering on your grill, including some of the more unconventional things that may not occur to you. Their vegan and vegetarian options clearly presented in the stores are really opening a lot of people's minds on what summer barbecue fare can look like. You can check them out online under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Tomorrow's show is going to be a great one. Already looking forward to our conversations. And Sarah Hoyles has some uh, amazing interviews booked. As mentioned, of course, you can always visit our past shows, including sharing interviews that resonated with you. Somebody else needs to hear them. Just check out our YouTube channel. We're going to talk about employers tomorrow requiring vaccines with a labor lawyer. Should be a good one. We'll talk to you then.